So I appreciate the very man perspective that Triloquy typically brings to classical music, so-called classical music, but I'm so glad to have you here this week to offer something else. Ladies and gentlemen, Delaney Harris, thank you so much for being here with, with me this week. Well, thank you give for you, having give me. Give you a little applause here. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you think the podcast game is going? Because since the beginning of Classically Black and since the beginning of Triloquy, it's been a lot of folks to sort of jump out and, and try to do their own thing. Do you see uh, Classically Black as having blazed a trail specifically in podcasting or what? What's, what, what's, what's going on over there at Classically Black? I mean, I think so a little bit, especially like with everybody being in the house the past mm -hmm. like two years almost at this point. Um, you know, there have been a lot of things, not just podcasts, but just a lot of things in general, Instagram accounts, nonprofits kind of kind of uh, popping up. Yeah. Um, I do think yeah, that everybody people... getting this 501c3 paperwork done so quick. <laughs> I don't get that. <laughs> right. Because it is not it's not easy. <laughs> no. <laughs> but um, I feel like people are, are realizing how how difficult it is to upkeep something like yep. this. I don't even know how y'all do it over here at Truly because Classy Black <laughs> is barely produced. It'd be like, if we say something wrong... It's just gonna yeah. be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> or sometimes it'd be like, okay, we're gonna have to cut that out, but other than that, y'all be having soundboards and all kind of other stuff. <laughs> but that, but see, one of my favorite things about Classically Black is how laid back it is, and it's just y'all. And, yeah. you know, what's said is what's said. I love right. it, just like this week. Um, we have a, a very special uh, underwriter uh, for this opus, uh, Molly McCann, and everyone over there at Hensel Pushers. Before I, I did that officially and properly, I wanted to, you know, since I'm, I'm taking advantage of having some woman energy here, one of the things about Hensel Pushers, and, and for folks who listen to Opus 80 of, of Triloquy will remember, one of the things Molly McCann was talking about was she teaches the name Fanny Hensel or Fanny Mendelssohn Hensel as opposed to just Fanny Mendelssohn because Fanny's man deserved a little shout out. So I wonder... I wonder what you think about that. I mean, in, in, in a world, especially in cl Western classical music, dominated by men and the male perspective, is it useful to slip a man in that bit of the conversation as far as his support for Fanny and everything he was doing? For, just, you know, from your perspective. I mean, I can't imagine... I don't, I don't know what she wanted as far as how she stylized her name. Cause I can't imagine that that name's going to do anything for her that the name Mendelssohn wasn't going to do, you know? Right. Um, but yeah, I feel like it's really just kind of up to the individual. Cause there's, there's a lot of, you know, conversation It's very loaded as to, to change your name to not, are you going to do both? Mm -hmm. Um, and I would be interested to know what, what kind of perspective, you know, um, that she had on that because it seems like even even nowadays it's still kind of um it's kind of a you know a controversy a little bit and you've seen some people doing other things where um they'll make a combination or right. or like if they have a child that's a whole other thing but um I feel like I feel like it could help in terms of showing that showing that she has support of her husband because as we know in situations like with the Maulers, yeah. there was not always support <laughs> right <laughs> um from one half of the marriage to the other you know uh -huh, right um so if she did have a man that was that was gonna stick beside her then you know 
maybe they could lead by example. Yeah, more power to her. Anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that here in a bit. But this week's downbeat, Delaney, we got to go to court. <laughs> we got to go to court. So I've been sitting here all week looking at the uh, Rittenhouse trial, and that's a whole nother conversation. But um, the Ahmad Arbery trial is also going on. And one of the defense attorneys had something very interesting to say. Let's take a listen. My understanding while I was cross-examining investigator Lowry yesterday is that the right Reverend Al Sharpton managed to find his way into the back of the courtroom. I'm guessing he was somehow there at the invitation of the victim's family in this case. And I have nothing personally against Mr. Sharpton. My concern is that it's one thing for the family to be present. It's another thing to ask for the lawyers to be present. But if we're going to start a precedent starting yesterday, we're going to bring high-profile members of the African-American community into the courtroom to sit with the family during the trial in the presence of the jury. I believe that's intimidating, and it's an attempt to pressure, could be consciously or unconsciously, an attempt to okay, pressure. Okay, so this is the thing. How does he think all these black people over generations feel in a whole courtroom with all these white people ready for you to go to jail. Is that not pressure? Is that not pressure? But it's be because that one little speck of chocolate in the courtroom <laughs> slipped in, he had a problem with it. What you what you think about this? I think it really goes <laughs> it really goes to show how a lot of white people view themselves cuz we already mm. know how they view us. Right. But they really don't they will look at everything that has happened over history and really convince themselves that we have no reason to see them as a threat. Right. That right. this threat, this whole thing only goes one way mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because it's like, first of all, we've been coexisting for hundreds of years at this point. And the fact that our presence has never, has never um, uprooted your privilege. It's never been something that has that has prevented white people from from progressing in society, et cetera. Like, what are y'all so scared about? They're they're scared of justice. They're scared of equity because right. the because the reverend whoever is in there. It don't have to be Al Sharpton. It could be anybody. That that energy and that presence means something, obviously, and that's why that defense attorney is trying to keep them out of there. Ooh, if I ever have to go to court, it it needs to be every preacher. It needs to be every one of these black orchestra directors. Hell, invite Beyonce Nim. I mean, that'll that'll sway a jury if anything will. <laughs> I feel like on one hand, it's like yeah, exactly. Some of y'all really need to be forced with that because as we see with like a lot of different things with the banning of the books and um in banning of certain history lessons, like people don't want to be confronted with that. But also yep. at the same time, it's like. Like that, um, that Fannie Lou Hamer uh, interview, that quote that she said, they know what they've done to us. It's mm -hmm. like if your conscience was going to be swayed, it would have been swayed by now. Right. right so right. I, there's also that I feel like, I mean, there there's a possibility that some people might be swayed by that. But also it's just like on one hand, there are a lot of people that do know what's going on, but also with the erasure of the history, um, I suppose that the, the, the presence of somebody like Reverend Al Sharpton could and it should. Also, the video should. So yeah. if, yeah. if anything right. else, period, or, <laughs> so. or just or, or just the or just the story. He didn't. Ahmad Aubrey did not have no gun. He didn't have a a, a crowbar. A not, was, was wasn't threatening nobody. 
and and here we are. But this this defense attorney is concerned about the presence of a preacher. Who goodness gracious! So of course, I'm always trying to tie these topics and these issues into the the concert hall, into you know classical music, whatever. I feel like <laughs> one of the reasons programming isn't really moving forward in the way that we think it should is because just like this defense attorney, there is a fear of what would happen if you have all that black energy in a concert hall. If you have, if you just have us, I'm going to try not to say the N word this episode, but <laughs> because it's us, it, it, it might slip out. My mouth might say something else, but <laughs> if it's a bunch of ninjas, I'll say mm -hmm. in the concert hall, <laughs> And we are hooping and hollering at whatever we want to hoop and holler at. We're getting up and going to the bathroom when we want to. Mm -hmm. when, when we are just treating the space as our own, which it should be, I feel like some of that respectability is going to be washed away. And, and, and they don't want to see it. They don't want to see it. I would love to see it. They don't want to see it. What do you think? Is, is it fair to draw that connection? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel be reaching. like... <laughs> listen i mean we joke on classical black sometimes it just be black podcasts because right. <laughs> the classical music we be we be doing our reaches too but i do feel like there is um there are a lot of concerns that that people have um about having a black presence um because usually if there is one there's not it's not going to just be a black presence and um having that sort of mix with the type of white people that we know are usually showing up to the concert hall um there's they're going to get complaints from patrons and from donors etc because they already do when the only presence of blackness in the concert hall is um is on the program like they already get like that Ooh. that that Detroit uh symphony subscriber that wrote that whole letter about how they're uh -huh. overhauling and it was like it wasn't even half the season i'm right. like what are you talking about <laughs> i'm like i'm like girl this is one concert will you calm down for goodness so, sake <laughs> do not let no black people be up in there clapping between movements oh right. my goodness panic or at the concert hall with within within the movement like for a concerto after the solo part is done y'all just holler at it Karen. and i've been in concerts where that's happened and you know what no one fucking died yeah. nothing bad happened here we are it's just a different flavor of it so anyway that's what uh classically black i know is built to do that's what triloquy is built to do and and we gonna keep on doing let's go ahead and get started <laughs> Triloquy Opus 125. I'd be over here counting rests during that theme to make sure I don't miss it. I don't even rely on my own familiarity with it. <laughs> so great to have you here this week. Scott is on vacation. Uh, he'll be back next week, but so glad that uh, we could have you on. It seems like Triloquy and Classically Black, at least once a season, we, we, we do our little collab. So I think it's always good to check in. Thank you again uh, for being here as this week's guest co-host. 
right. Thank you for having me. I meant to uh, mention it uh, before we got started, but if you want to uh, support the, uh, the family of Ahmad Arbery, there's actually a website. Visit runwithmod, M-A-U-D, runwithmod.com for more information on how you can support, how you can sign a petition and be a part of this really important movement because they have folks on their side. His defense attorneys don't even want any Negroes again. See, I have to. You you got me comfortable here. It's, it, it, you know they they don't even want the presence you know of black people, much less black justice. So we really need to do what we can to to make sure the family sees some semblance of justice. Runwithmod.com. Uh, what else? I've, see, it's it's different for me trying to do this intro with <laughs> with <laughs> in this sort of setting. What did I say? Opus one twenty five. Uh, returning listeners, thank you so much for returning and keeping Triloquy a relevant part of the. Ecosystem. To new listeners, thank you for checking us out. This is a podcast that takes the phrase classical music and we're working to decolonize it. So we change the definitions of classical music musically. We change up the conversations we have around classical music, the concert hall, all in an effort to make all of this something that folks actually give a damn about at the end of the day, at least more than they do now. <laughs> support for the Triloquy podcast, in addition to your support, comes from the Shuttleworth Foundation. The Shuttleworth Foundation funds individuals who are unafraid to reimagine the world and the way we live in it. More information at shuttleworthfoundation.org. I also would like to thank the Springboard for the Arts here in St. Paul, Minnesota, for supporting the work. The Springboard for the Arts is a local organization that makes sure artists and their art have a viable way of surviving in the ecosystem. More information on them at springboardforthearts.org. I would also like to send a very special thank you uh, this week for supporting Triloquy to Molly McCann and everyone over at Hensel Pushers. Hensel Pushers exists to make the compositions of Fanny Mendelssohn Hensel more accessible and to invite musicians to explore their own musicality as they engage with her work. In addition to their ongoing effort to provide free PDF scores of Hensel's music of more than 450 compositions, Hensel Pushers is publishing their first book, an easy piano arrangement of Hensel groundbreaking cycle Das Jahr or The Year and a companion lesson book with exercises in technique and musicianship for early to mid to intermediate level pianists of all ages. Buy the books for yourself or for a piano student or teacher in your life today. Pre-sale and discounted prices end on November 30th. For more information, visit henselpushers.org to preview. Very special thank you to everyone over at Hensel Pushers and to Molly McCann. If you want to learn a little bit more about Molly McCann, be sure to check out opus 80 of the triloquy podcast that's when we talked about classical music and weed i don't know if you know nothing about that delaney but i definitely do so <laughs> we got to normalize all of these things right we have to normalize all these things all right i think that does it for the announcement so we will get into movement one all right first and foremost delaney i need to send out a quick natural um, to the city of Boston. I want to shout out Gordon Williams. So uh, a couple weeks ago, Delaney, we were talking about a, a concert that the Boston Symphony put on that had uh, Victor Wooten. He's this incredible jazz mm. bass player. Um, they had some Samuel Coleridge Taylor. And I forget the other, uh, oh, a Duke Ellington uh, symphonic piece. So, you know, we were we were giving them their flowers. And, 
it felt funny for me to be giving them flowers, but I was like, okay, we have this concert program. It is what it is. So Gordon Williams uh, got in my inbox and said that I need to shout out Jay Andres Ballesteros and Cha Pong Lu for their work on the ground that actually make that sort of stuff possible. He said the uh, Boston Symphony Orchestra ain't out here doing it on their own and doing it out of the goodness of their heart. They're doing it because they're being made to do it. I mean, that sounds about right as far as the ecosystem. So, you know, gotta, gotta send out a natural and a shout out to everyone on the ground moving things forward. All right, so my first real accidental is a sharp. And I selected this one, Delaney, because it's hitting on where you're living right mm -hmm. now. You're in, um, wait, oh my gosh. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm going to leave this in here, but goodness gracious, I didn't mixed up Portland and Seattle. <laughs> where are you at, <laughs> Seattle? I am in Seattle. Who all see all of those northwestern rainy places where black folks don't go, or at least I didn't think we go. I get it mixed up. Are there black folks over there where you at? You no. said some. Yeah. <laughs> a couple. <laughs> yes, a couple. <laughs> well, anyway, th th this sharp comes from not too far away, uh, Portland. We're talking about King FM. I'm reading here from excuse me, uh, from OregonLive.com. All Classical Portland wins national honor for its work to diversify playlists. Let me read a little bit. As a child learning to play the flute, Adam Eccleston envisioned himself performing in front of an orchestra like James Galway, the Irish flutist whose name is synonymous with the instrument. But as he got older, that vision faded, quote, because I didn't look like James Galway. And that started to play a role in my life. Well, today, Eccleston is an award-winning flutist who has realized his dream of performing with orchestra including the Oregon Symphony. He's on the leadership team of all sorts of uh, organizations there on the ground diversifying uh, concerts. And he's also an all-classical Portland artist in residence whose video testimonial about the importance of representation helped propel the station's new recording inclusivity initiative. And they won that um, this year, uh, a, a few weeks ago. So shout out to everyone over there in uh, Portland, Classical Radio over at King FM. I did a presentation for them Delaney uh, earlier in the summer and I went on their website where it has all the playlists and everything mm -hmm. for the whole day and I took that whole playlist and for each of the composers I put their photo in this little pictogram into this little uh, collage or whatever and at the end of my presentation to them I showed that and I said, okay, you see all these white men on this screen right now, nothing but white men and most of them dead. That's what y'all's radio station sounds like right now. So, you know, when you bring in, when you bring in these receipts, you know, this hard data that, that can't be argued about is not trying to be inflammatory, getting into folks' feelings. This is really what it is. And I feel like sometimes it takes those real actions, those real stories to get some movement in, uh, in that direction. So I won't take credit, but, you know, shout out to um, Adam. Adam uh, Eccleston for telling his story and being a part of change because it's so important for classical radio, I think specifically, to engage these conversations. Most folks don't go to the concert hall, but many folks turn on that classical radio station uh, usually to relax or mm -hmm. before bed or whatever. But I think I think we can change that. Do you do you think this is a, a significant move in classical music for this, you know, let's just say it for this white classical music radio station? to in some way be moving forward in this conversation of programming and what classical music, so-called classical music should look like. 
I think so, just because, I mean, people can choose whether or not to, you know, turn on the radio and that sort of thing. But when it comes to um, going into live concerts, there's even less control over, you know, what or or rather who is going to hear um, who is going to hear what you program, because at the end of the day, people are going to look at what it is and they're either going to buy a ticket or not buy a ticket. At least when you're on the radio, you can sort of (laughs) cue things up and we playing it regardless whether you hear or not. And (laughs) also you already, the the station's already changed. So, you know, you don't have to worry about people being already quote unquote open-minded enough to purchase Mm -hmm. the ticket and actually come and see it because, um, you know, there are a lot of people who will look at who will look at what people are programming and then just be like, yeah, I'll catch you next time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think mm-hmm. that uh, radio is kind of in a unique position to not only have the ability to like play those pieces, but also to if you have a host that's doing it correctly to con- to contextualize it um, in a way that um, a lot of a lot of people don't do. Um, in the concert hall, some people have, you know, their pre-concert talks and yeah. things like that. But I do think it's it's just more authentic when it comes from the radio because it's more easily to it's more easily integrated. That it's it's interesting for you to bring to my mind, you know, the dissonant or not dissonance, but the dichotomy of on the radio context is being given, but in the concert hall space, it's usually just the conductor walk out there and play it, you know, minus a pre-concert talk or something. I mean, do you think it would help to before every piece, maybe even before every movement of a piece to have some sort of context offered or is that doing too much? (laughs) I think it depends on the piece. There are other ways, like like program notes, but you can't. I mean, I've written program notes. Um, I write program notes, and you know, sometimes people they just don't want to read them. <laughs> but <laughs> me, I'm people. <laughs> oh my god! What? Oh my gosh! Okay. Um, but um, I do think that we can look at what it means to to kind of bring storytelling into. Um, or onto the stage Mm -hmm. because I feel like the only way I think we were talking about this a couple weeks ago on classically black is like the only one of the only pieces you will ever see people even show any sort of creativity in when it comes to storytelling about what the piece is about it's like carnival of the animals it's a prime example so many people yeah well they will stage it they will actually you know do all of these things and they'll bring in a comedian to narrate and there might be costumes and things like there is um and that's because it's something that is you know it's fun it's goofy and it's not provocative in any way to have somebody mm-hmm. prancing around the stage in a lion costume <laughs> but it's kind of <laughs> <laughs> but it's like what does that look like when we or if we're a little bit more creative about how we present other works of music um when yeah. they're not you know you know just for fun i think some of the some of the pushback that people give when it comes to offering context doing more talking at concerts is that exactly what you're speaking to. We're used to that for children's programming. We're used to that for Carnival of the Animals, Peter and the Wolf, Young Person's Guide, you know, all all those pieces. But I guess some of these hoity-toity orchestra goers don't want to feel like they being talked at, like, oh, just let me enjoy the music, you know. And it's a huge thing, a huge part 
of of classical uh music concert goers and a part of the appeal is kind of being in the know mm-hmm. you know it, because we see these because that's why they keep going to see the same pieces over and over again because it's like oh well we know this it's right. standard repertoire and, <laughs> and yeah and i know this recording and i you know like it that's a part of it you know to to feel like you're kind of in this exclusive thing and that's why you always hear people being like oh well they just don't get it and and they don't have like like oh my god for example um the the dude one of the co-artistic directors of the chamber music society in new york who was like there's more diversity in one Haydn string quartet than there is in a hundred components <laughs> It's like, that's all like the most poindexter ass thing Like, I've ever what are heard. you even talking about? Remind me who said that. I did read that. His name, oh, I can't, he was one of the co, um, co-artistic directors. Actually, I have it right here because I had, you know, I'm a New York Times subscriber and I have that, I have that, um, that saved and his name is David Finkel. David Finkel. David oh yeah, I found it. I'll I'll put it in the um I'll put it in the description of this. You know, what you remind me of is a situation that I dealt with in real life in Detroit. So I'm I'm a I'm a play this. So I get to rehearsal and you know, I'm still relatively new in the whole profession of classical music. So I'm making sure that I'm double prepared for the first rehearsal. You know, ain't nobody going to say nothing to me. So I, I I sit down in rehearsal and this is one of my first concerts with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. We have a piece of music on the program and the rehearsal starts and it sounds a little something like this. Well, let's listen to this for a second. So obviously a very contemporary sounding pieces of uh, piece of music for for uh, for for folks who don't know that's the first movement of the violin concerto by Thomas Addis. Anyway, so it requires all of this counting, all of this uh, being prepared, you know, all of these things. And you would have thought that you put the hardest thing in the world on those music stands, the way those tenured musicians who had been there for 15, 20, 25 years could not play that music. And I'm not trying to sit here and shit on the musicians of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. I'm just saying to highlight your point, folks love to be familiar with things, not only from the audience perspective, but from the musician perspective. So some of this pushback may be folks just don't want to learn new music or or folks don't want their orchestra's pants uh, to be uh, to be pulled down by their audience seeing what they can really do, you know, mm-hmm. as, uh, aside from what they already know, what they've been practicing and performing for 20 something years. Yeah, I definitely think that's that's part of it, too, because, I mean, I always say that they played Dvorak 8 twice in my four years mm, in college. Mm, mm. <laughs> <laughs> and who even who even talks about Dvorak 8? I mean, it's not that like you even talking about Dvorak 9. Right. And then <laughs> and then if there was a new piece, it would I mean, the wind ensemble was always doing new stuff because, you know, always. Mm-hmm. But if the orchestra was doing a new piece, it would probably be a conducting grad student doing it, you know, right. Um, because, you know, the learning process. And it's like, well, some of y'all also need to be engaged in the learning process because you haven't in 45 Period. years. <laughs> <laughs> Period. <laughs> were they uh, were, did they, did you ever get put in the wind ensemble over there at Eastman? 
Yeah, a couple times. Did, did the did the institute and uh, you know I, I understand the politics of it all, so you know don't say nothing if you don't feel like you can. But do they put respect on wind ensemble over there at Eastman in the way that they need to? Is it an ensemble that you know folks don't shit on? Yeah, absolutely. I think because I had never seen wind ensemble be done that way. I had been in like band because I was in band um, all throughout. I would say from seventh grade through high school playing bass um not playing bass i played bass for some um for in middle school in band but in high school i played a uh, flute and bassoon in two different wait bands a, wait a minute I mean, not yeah. the bassoon <laughs> why, am I, why am i just now learning this oh, yeah. okay so also oh, now it's time for to do duets then no <laughs> listen I, that's one of the things where it's like if i could play another instrument if i could get another bassoon i would play the bassoon like really? I wouldn't want to learn how to play another instrument. I would I would play the bassoon because I actually really did enjoy it. Um, but um, yeah, I've never seen it done um, the way it is at Eastman. It's kind of it's that whole like one person on a part and they're doing really really great music. Um, mm-hmm. And I did uh, I was exposed to a lot of different um, composers for wind ensemble for that type of wind ensemble um, that that I hadn't um, I hadn't ever, you know, come in contact with. And, you know, they had a wind orchestra and a wind ensemble the same way that they had the two, the upperclassmen and the lowerclassmen orchestras. Oh, okay. They had the same yeah. thing. And they also had a chamber wind ensemble that would tour and stuff. It was it was a big deal. Yeah, that that's why I think my views on classical music are the way they are now, because I came up in that in that general aesthetic. You know, my mm-hmm. high school wind ensemble took itself very seriously. My my uh, college, my undergrad wind ensemble. Oh, that was the ensemble. Like the orchestra of that that that's fine and everything, but <laughs> folks were running not to be late to win. I mean, it, that 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 served the foundation for even my professional experience of coming to the first rehearsal prepared, being on time, X, mm. Y, and Z. So yeah, um, shout out to all that. They need to put more band music on the radio, on the classical radio too. That's one thing that I've been trying to integrate. Um, as an independent radio producer, you know, <laughs> and I always keep that. I keep that band experience in my back pocket when it comes to section wars, and they be like, "Well, you don't know about you don't know about what's going on over here." But like, actually, you, you be like, actually, you need to flick and use your whisper key. I do know. <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious. Have you uh, have you cut on the uh, classical radio? I forget the name of the station in Seattle, but have you listened to any classical radio over there? Um, I actually took a tour of their offices because they share an office with the opera and -hmm. I have a meeting there about once a month. So um, I have I've actually um, turned it on a couple of times. I actually for my job, I write radio ads. Oh, come on. Radio. (laughs) Um, But I have um, a couple of times and I've also seen their facilities. Pretty cool. Okay, we we might need to talk about some um some triloquy underwriting or something on the on the uh, radio station over there, so that so that they know. Look, this is cute what y'all doing over here. That's all great. You're sharing your offices with the opera. It's some real ninjas out here at classical radio that got something to say as well, mm-hmm. and in the podcasting space anyway. <laughs> we uh we chased that rabbit off the trail. So shout out to uh King FM. Uh, uh, congratulations to y'all, giving y'all a sharp for your award for diversity in programming. We hope to see so much more of it. Uh, to transition us into uh, the next accidental, we're gonna listen to the flutist I was uh, talking about, who's cited in this article. His name is Adam Eccleston. He's playing alongside pianist Lydia Chung a bit of the third movement of Piston's Flute Sonata. We'll take a listen to a bit of that here. (laughs) ¶¶ 
see that be that that be the struggle with some of this more contemporary music. Uh, uh, Walter, I had to look up his first name. Walter Piston is the man's name because not only do you have to be prepared and make sure you have your ducks in a row, you have to have a pianist who gonna do what needs to be done as well. Listen, I've been there <laughs> that, before. That's the whole episode. <laughs> Yeah, and the Miss Sonata, my teacher had to pull Ooh. me aside and be like, "Look, you ain't gonna find no pianist that want to do it though." I had a I had a faculty pianist for that one because oh, he come was on. like, "Come on, come yeah. on, I had and all then, my ducks in a row." And then don't need a harpsichord player or something, mm. you know. But anyway, sh shout out to all of the collaborative pianists. We used to say accompanists. Some of y'all do be accompanying, but a lot of y'all. <laughs> A lot of y'all are collaborative pianists as well. So shout out to y'all. Shout out to Adam Eccleston and everybody over there at King FM. All right. So I think we're going to transition uh, into another sharp. You have some things to talk about as far as weekend events. What's going on this weekend? So this weekend, the International Society for Black Musicians is having our very first uh, convening um, virtually, you know, keeping it budget Keeping friendly and COVID friendly. Yeah. <laughs> you said budget and COVID in that yeah. order. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, but we're having our um our first uh convening. We're gonna have um a bunch of uh black musicians just getting together um for a day to kind of talk about um our future um as um black musicians we kind of based the theme of this year's conference off of um an essay that langston hughes wrote called temples of tomorrow mm. um and um it's basically just about um well actually the the quote and that named the conference is temples um uh temples of tomorrow the actual essay is called um the negro artist in the racial mountain mm. um and, you know, and it's it's kind of about this new generation of black artists um, sort of just coming into themselves um, and not really um, being being held back by anything and kind of just creating unapologetically. And we kind of just wanted to apply that to um, the the membership of ISBM and uh, get some people's some people's thoughts. Um, so we had a whole request for proposals process and that sort of um, the conference is sort of a result of that, of what people, um, you know, came to us and said uh, what, what they wanted to talk about. Yeah. I know we talked about ISBM the last time you and Katie, shout out to Katie. Uh, we haven't mm -hmm. said her name yet. Shout out to Katie. I know we talked about ISBM uh, last time y'all were on Triloquy, but for folks who might not have uh, been there, what's sort of the rundown of the journey that the two of you have been on creating this organization, getting it going, getting people involved? What's all that looked like over this year or so, maybe even over a year at this point, right? Yeah, over a year at this point. It's been, you know, it's been a lot because the ISBM has changed so much and it'll probably change again because I feel like a lot of, um, I feel like Katie and I are really on different sides of the spectrum. She's more of the let's just get up and do it. And I'm mm -hmm. more of the let's plan every single thing and every single detail. But the problem with that is that, you know, sometimes things never happen if you just spend all day trying to, you know, just figure out every minute detail when things right. are going to end up changing and evolving regardless. Um so I think that was um, kind of where we sort of met each other in the middle with ISBM and kind of being okay with the fact that there's a lot of constituencies underneath black musicians, you know, that, right. that, that phrase means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So um, the process has just kind of been um, trying to create 
um, a, a descriptor that's going to be, I guess, broad enough to encompass the entire community, but also um, specific enough so that people know who this is for. Mm-hmm. Um, and also being um, just being open to to seeing the organization kind of evolve beyond beyond us. This is a, a really uh, sort of the flip side of classically black because although classically black is for uh, it's for black classical musicians mm-hmm. at the end of the day like classically black is our opinions it's like the show is what it is because of our personalities right. and isbm is sort of a more you know it's not about us you know it's about um it's about the membership and it's about people who want to be involved so it's um it's it's a different sort of project in that way have y'all managed to get the nonprofit status yet no, we have not. Because, uh, that that is just a that is just such a thing, and yeah. something I, I I speak to it. You know, I don't I don't know every few weeks. I don't I don't like to bore people who don't know that side of of music and media and you know creation and all of that stuff. But there are so many benefits to having that five hundred one c three status. So many grants that you can't even apply. If you don't have that, uh, I, I wonder if, if you share any of my frustration there. You know, you have put together this whole society, International Society for Black Musicians. Y'all got a conference. I know that there are so many things that you would have access to. Both you and Katie will have access to if ISBM were that nonprofit. But it's not. And there are, there are barriers to that. It's not like y'all just decided not to go to the website and read about it or, or go through the process. It's a lot to do. I mean, do, do you see that as a barrier? Yeah, definitely. Especially like living your everyday life. Cause like ISBM is not the sole project of either of ours. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, this past year has been, it maybe, maybe if we had started it at that very first, you know, everybody was in the house, everything was canceled. What are we doing? You know, where we had all that time on our hands, but mm-hmm. it's like things are opening back up and it's just like, they're just so so many things to take care of to get that to get that status because yes when people are turning it around quick i'm like y'all must hire somebody to do that they had to have they had (laughs) to have and you're talking about how you know that's not your main project because of course we know that you know reaching and continuing to achieve excellence on the base is your primary goal right Uh, that's the main thing you out here doing Uh, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, I, yeah, I got a complicated relationship with the bassoon myself. All right. So this podcast, Delaney, is called Triloquy. So there's something that we need to speak to when it comes to this weekend's conference. Anyone can go on the website and contribute, you know, help make uh, future conferences and convenings possible. A lot of people have been invited to this convening. And some people aren't invited. <laughs> Talk to me. Why are some people not invited? Who is not invited? What's the reasoning behind this? So (laughs) you will see on our registration page, it says you must be a member of ISBM. And you will see on our ISBM membership page, there is a little little box or or a question that says, are you black? And there's only one box. (laughs) You said there's only one answer. There's only one box. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the the reason for this is because... There are um, a lot of spaces just as musicians in general that we are in mixed spaces and we're not really able to um, speak freely about what's going on with us and Mm -hmm. um, and just how we want to advance ourselves as a people and also just to provide support for each other, because there are so many um, 
black musicians that go into spaces um, and are are dealing with um, they're dealing with microaggressions. They're dealing with all kinds of things that um, they may not feel comfortable coming forward about, et cetera. You know, um, and we really wanted ISBM to be a place where people know that they can um, they can come and express those um, those feelings with with their people. Um, and so that was really important for us to um, have the conference sort of be about that um, and for for us to kind of create that because I know a lot of people are not comfortable saying that they're not comfortable saying that hey this is only for black people because mm-hmm. I mean you know I feel like when you do that there's all I mean we see this with HBCUs all the time when people right. are like what you know like why do you need xyz and it's like well it's funny you should ask because you should know why we need it yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> um and it's actually crazy how it's like once once white people were not even they didn't even let us in since they were forced to include us in certain things and even when they were including us and that's it wasn't the thing. in a way that's the key right exactly it wasn't in a way that was welcoming or or any sort of situation that a black person would want to willingly put themselves in as soon as that happened people were like well tear the hbcus down we don't need that no more why don't we tear what y'all got going on down Right, right. Let's go do that. Let's go do that. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was kind of the um, that's kind of the reasoning behind why we're why we're kind of standing firm in that. And same thing with classically black because we get that question of when mm-hmm. when are you gonna open up classically black? And the answer is never. So <laughs> <laughs> and you know what is that wrong? <laughs> <laughs> no, like I I definitely get that, and it's. It's a fine line for me to walk down because I have intentionally, well, you know, first of all, Triloquy started at a media conglomerate. So, you know, there, there are certain things there, but, you know, even, even continuing, I don't know. I, 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 I know that everything along the spectrum needs to exist. So when it comes to Triloquy, I've look, we, we center blackness. Like there, there's no denying that. And we can let more people into the space, you know, especially when it comes to guest interviews and all those things. So, you know, th- that that's great. I also, though, with all that being said, I honor the black spaces because, as you said, they just need to exist. We still around here begging y'all to play William Grant Still and Florence Price in the music of a hundred years ago, much less the black music today and mm-hmm. much less black music that falls outside of a an aesthetic that a lot of people would consider classical so if i don't know if if a person is bothered by a space being solely black i would just say that you don't really understand the depth of the issue and why that is needed i would love for one day for us not to to need that i will you know i was getting into a conversation with somebody the other day about the term black in reference to excuse me in reference to ourselves and the way we identify i would love to live and i feel like this is something that a lot of folks don't understand i would love to live in a colorblind society but we can't do that yet we can't do that because color determines where you live what loans you um you uh, qualify for the 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 uh the jobs you can get i mean color is significant so if we can get to a place where we don't need those things i think that's great that's just not the place where we are right now <laughs> yeah. yeah and that's it's not giving anytime soon so <laughs> we <laughs> right. keep doing you said we're not we there doing. today and we won't be there tomorrow either <laughs> right so <laughs> and we won't be there on saturday when this convening is happening <laughs> so. amen okay well so first of all for everyone who wants to uh contribute offer resources whatever where can they do that? 
Uh, you can do that at our website at isblackmusicians.com. Um, there'll be, I think, on the yeah, on the homepage, it'll say support our cause, and um, you can just click there and make a donation. And then for the Negroes, for the blacks <laughs> who want to be there, how can they find out how to log into the Zoom on Saturday? <laughs> Um, you can um, go to the link in our Instagram bio. You can go to our website, um, go to events, and there will be the link to register there um, as well. And that will give you everything you need to know will be coming to your email um, once you're on that on that list. But before before we leave this, <laughs> <laughs> does the you know, in me talking about ISBM and the need for all and only black spaces, all, you know, as, as fiery as I am, there's still a little bit of that, ooh, that feels sort of against the grain, like not wrong. Like, I don't feel like I'm saying something wrong, but I know that I'm, I'm saying something that a lot of people are going to shake their head at or, or, you know, be, be worried about. Is, is that completely gone for you when you're talking about black spaces and exclusively black spaces? Are you just completely 100% comfortable? Is there a part of you that's still sort of colonized or what, what does that look like for you? Um, I think I'm mostly there. I feel like it maybe there might be some situations like maybe if I was in a situation where I was like like maybe if I was like at work or something or like if I was talking mm -hmm. to like some older white people then like I, I might I might phrase it a different way um but that's something that I would like to undo I don't think that that's something that I want to I want to keep and I'm also just I'm speculating that um mm -hmm. because I'm thankfully not really in those positions very much um anymore but I feel like the the reason why I've been so comfortable with that is one because when we get the question about classically black um I always try to ask people why is it that when things are only for black people you guys think it's limited because first of all to me there's nothing there's nothing limited about blackness I think we are one of the Ooh, um come on come on we're one of the people that no one really people don't really realize how how many different things fall under the category of black and like how mm -hmm. how large the diaspora is and how diverse we are as a people that's really lost um on a lot of people um and then also i would really like for people to interrogate why they think what something is about black people why expanding it is is synonymous to making it better um <laughs> um like i would really like for people to 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 think about that um and then yeah, I mean, I had another point, but you know, my my brain. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, oh, that, that's oh, go ahead, I, go ahead. I do remember this because also because Black people have really been at the forefront of um, helping other other communities as well, and I feel like you know we always hear that that phrase of like um, if like none of us are free if all of us are not free, you know, right. that sort of thing, and we actually do have that in one of the sessions we're having. Uh, the Chromatic Brass Collective come in and they are a black women uh, founded organization. Um, but they are an organization that helps and um, and uplifts um, all uh, racially um, and ethnically underrepresented women and gender nonconforming um, brass players. Yeah. So it, this was an organization that was founded by black women and is helping 
other communities and we thought it was really important to have them in the conversation because we had that conversation with them they were like hey just letting you know like we know ISBM is only for black people but that's not you know our organization does this and we were like that's you know that's great you know because yeah. we we want other people to have their spaces too right. um, and we also want to highlight the black people that have made that possible for other people to have those spaces so um, I think that is our sort of way of um, making sure that people know that we are um, completely supportive of other um of other communities having um having the space to be uplifted as well because we know that um as intersectional as people in the black community are they have historically sort of been at the forefront of the struggle for other communities as well that's the thing right because when we talk about uh creating spaces for women, black spaces promote that because there are women who are black. You know, people are black and queer at the same time. People are black and have different abilities at mm -hmm. the same time. So, you know, those intersectional things to uh, is just I feel like what a lot of folks don't think about. And quite frankly, we see we've been here for a minute and we could be here for longer. We will, uh, not a whole bunch longer. But for me, something that I've learned, one of the signs of a good ally and potential accomplice is having that person who is not black that understands that point and understands why these spaces have to exist. My boyfriend is not black, but when I go somewhere that's black and he got to stay home, he know why. And that's okay. <laughs> it's not an argument. It's not any of that. Same uh, same with Scott. Shout out to Scott. So I feel like as black people, as we align ourselves with people who are not black and find these accomplices and and do all of uh, do all of this thing, we have to make sure that that key ingredient is there understanding for them why some of these spaces have to exist. You know, I think about myself and women's spaces. I definitely understand why spaces only for women have to exist. I, I don't know if I've told the story on Triloquy, but you know, I'm sure a lot of men have a similar story. I'm, I think I'm in, uh, I was in New York and I saw uh, some, uh, the gay pride flag outside of this spot. And I was like, oh, okay, that's a, that's a queer bar. I walk up to the door, the studliest of the studs. And I use that <laughs> word as a, as a, a term of endearment. That, that's not shade. The studliest of the studs got up off of the stool that was outside of the door, stood in front of it and said i don't think so <laughs> and i peeked my head in the door and that was a a, a, a queer femme space uh. specifically so first of all i was happy enough to you know be looking trade enough that day for her to clock <laughs> me as a man so shout out to her for that but <laughs> but also i understand the point is i understand why those spaces have to exist you know specifically for women so we need folks who are not black to understand why those spaces have to exist i live you know where i live in um saint paul i live on the west side and it's the um, the black and uh, Mexican part of town. And there are some restaurants you go into, there are some spaces you go into where they ain't speaking no English. And that's mm -hmm. just that. And it's not up to me to have be, to be upset about that or, or, or X, Y, and Z. I get it. So if I want to participate in that space, I need to learn English. If they want to participate in ISBM, I guess they need to be black. And that's just that. <laughs> you have some, uh, see, you have been hanging out at the radio station, I can tell, because you're trying to um, pull out this little segue talking about the Brass Collective that mm -hmm. you've been talking to. It won't be that on ensemble we're about to hear from but uh who are we about to hear from to transition out of this um this is a group of um of black tuba and euphonium players and actually um the uh the woman that um does these arrangements she does arrangements of um of 
um, pieces by black composers for um, for low brass. Her name is Jasmine Pickett. She is one of the founders of Chromatic Brass Collective. She's playing in the um, in the piece we're about to hear um, right now, and she also did the arrangement for it. So we're going to hear an arrangement she did of Lift Every Voice and Sing. Amen. The national anthem. I don't even say the Negro now. The national anthem, mm -hmm. period. Here's a period. bit of this. Has your relationship with Lift Every Voice evolved over your years of doing this liberation work, this Black-centric work, uh, or did you always know the lyrics and and, and all of that? <laughs> um, I always did. I was lucky enough. To, oh, really? Good yeah, for you. Yeah, to to go um, to a school that was from kindergarten to, to seventh grade. Went to a school that was founded by um, actually from preschool to seventh grade. My, the school that I went to was founded by a black couple. We did Black History Month program every year that was like, you know, I remember my sister and her friends, they dressed up as the group In Vogue and did like mm. an In Vogue tribute one year. And we did, lift, we sang Lift Every Voice all the time. I grew up celebrating Kwanzaa in school, not yeah. at home, in school. <laughs> so yeah. um, it was definitely uh, embedded. Also, that must be interesting for you to see black folks coming on to Kwanzaa, coming on to Lift Every Voice, coming on to Juneteenth, because mm -hmm. it, it seemed like everybody learned about Juneteenth this year. So we yeah. no officially no one has an excuse anymore, you know, <laughs> Which, but, but, but it must be something for you to see black folks catching up. Mm -hmm. And there's also has been something for me to see people to be seeing everybody getting the day off of work on Juneteenth. Something about that <laughs> like, wait a right minute. You're like, <laughs> everybody? You said some of y'all need to be at work. <laughs> some <laughs> right. No paid. No. <laughs> but no, but but that's the thing, because the companies that will give folks off for Juneteenth are the companies that, you know, you have to have this resume and this, that, and the other you know, to even be in there, you know, because McDonald's ain't, and not to say that black folks don't have so-called high level jobs. I'm not saying that, but McDonald's is open on, mm -hmm. on Juneteenth. You know, the grocery store is open on Juneteenth and that's where a lot of black folks work. So yeah, mm -hmm. I think that conversation definitely needs to evolve. If I, you know, when I was working jobby jobs, I, m most of the, most of the time I was working, not in music, I was a bartender and it wouldn't be nothing for me to say, look, um, it's it's gay pride on such and such a day, so I will not be at work. I, I never worked a jobby job like that um, uh, around the time where I was uh, learning about and knowing about Juneteenth. But you better know that I would have. So listen, if you are black, wherever you work, especially if you don't work in a music institution, an orchestra or something, this coming Juneteenth, hell, throw in Kwanzaa, a few days, the days of Kwanzaa. Tell your boss, listen, I need off on these days and... I will be off on these days. See, last week on the podcast, we were talking about can versus will. Just just write a note and say, I will not be at work on Juneteenth 
I'll see you on Monday. Right. Amen. I'm, I'm <laughs> definitely one to be like, hey, just letting you know that I won't be in on this. <laughs> because I always see people put it in the Slack channel. Hey, um, I'm going to be taking this day off. But if you need anything, just just text. I'll be like, I'm You'd taking like, this no. day off. And that's that. Period. The that's the period. end of the sentence. So, it, so it's your sentence and then the notification that you logged out. Exactly. Because they'd be like, if there's anything urgent, I'm like, come on. What symphony emergency can't wait till Monday? I could- because our liberation is urgent. That's what's urgent. See, don't don't get me into my hotel bag. Don't get me into my hotel bag. Anyway, shout out to ISBM. I can't I have I, I cleared my uh calendar months ago. So I can't wait to be there and to see what everybody talking about and to be in fellowship. It's gonna be blessed. I can't wait. All right. Well, we have um one more accidental. I had planned on um I'll link it anyway. There was a New York Times article titled Why Wokeness Will Fail. But since you brought up this other one where they talking about heightened, I, I feel like we need to put the put the people on to this. So I'm just gonna go ahead and give it a flat. And that's just that. I'm reading from datebook.sfchronicle.com. Diversify the world of classical music. Some key players are digging in their heels. I'll, I'll read just a little bit to offer some context for folks. It says, because this is a day ending in Y. See, it's shady already. <laughs> Not even the first, it's shady. It says, because this is a day ending in Y, it's time once again to take up the question of the classical music repertoire. Specifically, how long can an artistic culture survive and thrive on the work of the same uh, circumscribed set of dozens or so dead white European men. Okay, so let me go um, down to the quote that um, you cited. So we have all these conversations about why, you know, uh, racial and gender diversity is important in music, blah, 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 da, da, da. Okay, well, it says here, in response, people doubled down by their reckoning artistic success. Yes, even diversity can be achieved without ever leaving the comfortability familiar, uh, the comfortably familiar niche of the same old chamber works performers have been playing for centuries. There is more variety and diversity in a single string quartet of heightened Finkel opined than you can find in about a hundred works of other composers. This is the thing though, Delaney, he don't know the other works of hundreds of other composers. <laughs> so what that you talking part. about? <laughs> and also, yeah, that that's when he, when it goes to that. That's when it gets into like this is a total cop out because what are you even talking about? Like, right. First like of all, in hiding of all people, right? Of all of the composers, like he didn't say Ravel, he didn't say Gershwin. <laughs> I'm telling you, I feel like hiding. Especially, you know, back then wasn't on YouTube. You can't go back. I bet you by the time he got to Symphony 112, he was like, I bet you don't nobody remember what number seven sound like. He took it, (laughs) put it in a different key, and it's the same symphony. I bet you he did it. And the thing is, all those heightened symphonies, you need the nicknames because, you know, you got what? The drum roll symphony, the queen symphony, the bear symphony, the firework. You need all that. Otherwise, we really wouldn't remember none of this stuff. (laughs) at all what are you talking about <laughs> like yeah i was just like i put that there's that one that one um video going around twitter it's from one of the i think it's from one of the real housewives shows or something where it's like loser i was like that's because uh-huh. <laughs> i'm like that is just this is why people think we so out of touch <laughs> i mean how how long do you think and, and I'm not asking, you know, is the movement cooling down? How long do we have in that regard? But how long do we have considering the fact that more people like you, like Katie, like me, are out here not 
bending over backwards to maintain this respectability. We're saying no. And I know that some of the elders will be like, well, there have always been people out here, you know, saying this or doing that and, you know, trying to push the movement forward. So I'm not saying that. Shout out to all the black elders in classical music. And I ain't never seen it like this before. So there has to be something unique about this time at the intersection of social media, at the intersection of things like YouTube and all the other resources we have to actually, you know, have the receipts behind what we're talking about. There is more music out here. Y'all just ain't playing it. Exactly. And I think, I mean, it's great that we're seeing so many people kind of come up with these grassroots things. But it's like at, at the end of the day, I mean, you see, these are the things that are getting New York Times articles, mm-hmm. you know, and, and things like that. And um, and they're able to get on and do this just God awful interview. <laughs> like, it's just really right. embarrassing. Um, this God awful interview and like be confident in that because their tickets are still selling, you know. And it's like I feel like it's a lot of this younger generation that has not really um, we're not necessarily we're certainly not financially empowered in, um, mm-hmm. in, in classical music. And unfortunately that's, um, what a lot of organizations are sort of like, are sort of leaning on, especially after having, you know, some people had a, a season that just didn't exist at all, um, in mm-hmm. 2020. Um, although that, I mean, obviously that didn't have a, a, a ton to do with, with this sort of change. Cause this has been something we've been trying to get off the ground for, you know, decades at the, at this point. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I just feel like I just feel like it's it's great to kind of see all of these things um, pop up, but also it's very much an uphill battle because so many people, so many of us are depending on where can we get a grant from such and such organization right. and having to, you know, in some ways being beholden to them. Um in, in that way, because at the end of the day, I know Katie went on a rant on a recent episode where like um, you kind of come up against these older sort of these older sort of perspectives um, in classical music that are not really taking into account what we are um, going through in like where we're at in the career. This was about um, specifically about application fees and how those might yeah. serve as a, as a barrier. And she was talking about how for a fellowship, a diversity fellowship, they were charged an application fee in. And her teacher was like, Oh, well it's only $30. She was like, only. Right. Yeah. And, and talking <laughs> well, they, about, they give it to me then. It right. is only $30. And talking about the experience. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, she's like the experience. First of all, I don't got, like, I understand that that taking auditions is a skill, but at the same time, not everybody can do everything for experience. I can't drop a band flying out here for the experience because she's like, X-Infinity, Rent, uh, T-Mobile, all of them want their money every 30 days and they don't care nothing about this viola. They right. don't care about intonation. <laughs> they don't care nothing. None of it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what did you just have me thinking? Oh, right. Uh, yeah. See, there are several places we can go from here. But when you when I'm thinking about folks talking about, oh, I'm taking this audition for experience, that not only was that a frustration for me when I was on the audition circuit, it was a frustration for me when I was on the other side of the curtain as a member of an orchestra listening to all of these auditions. I don't need folks here. I, it's 250 of y'all as it is. I don't need the folks here who just for the experience. I'm interested in listening to the people who are here trying to win a job. 
Because exactly. if I pay the money to travel, rent the car, airplane, whatever, and then practicing, being stressed out. See, we don't talk about the emotional side of it. You be in the hotel room stressed out <laughs> the yeah. night before, you know, can't sleep, tossing and turning. And then it's folks here who just want to do it for the experience. No, stay home. Public service announcement. If you are trying to take an audition and you just want the experience, stay the hell home please <laughs> for the sake of everybody else auditioning for the folks on the panel now we need to break down the whole audition structure anyway you know that's another conversation mm -hmm. but don't just do it for the experience if it were up to me i'm gonna tell you how it will look. we were talking about collaborative um pianists earlier if it were up to me maybe they do it closer like this over in europe you would show up um, sure, pay the fee, uh, whatever, figure out a, an accompanist or whatever, and just show the panel in the first round what you got musically. Okay. Or if not in the first round, maybe in the final round, but I just feel like that has to be an aspect of it because there are so many musicians out here and I'm sure this will come up at ISBM who can play exactly what needs to be played in those eight measures. But as soon as you get into the mix of the music, the mix of, uh, the profession of being in an orchestra, the, it's these same folks who couldn't play that Thomas Addis concerto mm -hmm. is these same folks who can't count or swing when it's time for some black music and all those sorts of things. So, um, anyway, let me, let me give, uh, of this, uh, the writer of, of this article, uh, we're talking about Joshua Kozman, a few flowers. So um, after they talk about the uh, the so-called diversity of a heightened string quartet, see, not even the symphonies, the string quartets. <laughs> he says, first of all, that's not what diversity means. When people talk about diversifying the repertoire, it refers to a process meant to give other voices, voices long kept silent, a place in the ongoing musical conversation. It doesn't mean finding room for both heightened in a major key and heightened in a minor key because you know they'll love to do that too exactly because it's like we can't even talk about the same hiding that couldn't even give us a mezzo forte Ooh, listen <laughs> listen <laughs> anyway shout out to um i don't know who i need to shout out shout out to everybody who think that Haydn is diverse and you get your life from Haydn. I mean, if that is really you for real, shout out to you because that's not me. I need so much more. Some people can put their chicken in the oven, no seasoning or nothing, take it out and eat that white chicken breast. And, you know, just un not even browned on the top. So some people are okay with Boiled. that. <laughs> Come on, boiled chicken. <laughs> and and some of us need some some seasoning. Some some of us need something a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So and, and that's what we're trying to do in music. A little bit more than the the bland chicken, a little bit more than bland Haydn. All right. Uh when I get into these conversations, I feel like I'd be getting my hotep bag. So we're gonna to transition out of <laughs> movement one. We're gonna listen to um a piece of music titled Variations on an Egyptian folk song because you know the, the hoteps we love to we love to talk about the pyramids and we was kings and all that so <laughs> every now and again uh i'm sure you have just phrases you say in your mind that you just say to yourself and just randomly be laughing somebody uh, one time sent me a meme it had this dog with the the uh the uh, the kufi on you know and the and the red eyes and the caption was don't don't eat that dog bone. Don't eat that dog food. We was wolves. <laughs> anyway, I'm doing too much playing. This is uh, and the pianist is William Chapman Yahoo. Do you know who that is? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, is a, a black a black pianist. Um, I think uh, if, if he's not from Nigeria, his family is from Nigeria, and his thing is he only records music from the African diaspora. So this is a uh, one of those pieces. A little bit here of the ending of variations on an Egyptian folk song, as performed by the one and only William Chapman Nyaho. Okay, so since you are so uh, experienced with Afro-Americanness, you talk about uh, the uh, Negro National Anthem at school. Did y'all do the Pledge of Allegiance or something else? Y'all did something with your fists in the air every morning. What did y'all do? <laughs> no, I do remember having to do the Pledge of Allegiance, which just makes me sick <laughs> to believe I ever did that. But <laughs> Right? <laughs> And then don't go to a rehearsal and they got uh, variations on the Pledge of Allegiance. I'm going to just walk off stage. I'm going to be like, ah, I'm all right. Y'all yeah. got it. Y'all Hollywood Bowl, they do the National Anthem. I'll be like, anyway. I'll sit down, <laughs> scrolling. Anybody say anything, I'll be like, listen, you lucky I don't lay down. <laughs> <laughs> listen. <laughs> uh, no, but what I was going to ask was, uh, what what do you think about, and I feel like it's not so much of a thing now as it was maybe 15 years ago, but the iconography of Egypt as blackness. You know, we built the pyramids. This is our ankh. This is, you know, our thing. And then, of course, today, Egypt doesn't look just Negro in that way, despite the fact that... Yeah, so, I, basically, is that something that you've thought about at all, just the, the general iconography of Egypt as, you know, blackness and where we need to go? Not really, especially just because um, I feel like so everything that I've heard in in terms of like how um, how people view themselves in Egypt is not necessarily I mean, this can be said for other places in the diaspora as well, Mm -hmm. um, but it's not necessarily align itself with blackness. Um, So I feel like there are more especially recently places like Ghana have been right. have been more uh, aligning themselves with blackness as you know as sort of a diasporic um destination when they had that um where well, I forget what they called it um back in like 2019 or something when they had all of the they invited um all of the black americans and everyone to come back to to Ghana quote unquote back to Ghana um yeah. And I forget they they had a they had a oh the like the great return or something like that or like a year of return or something yeah. like that. So I feel like recently um, there's been sort of a um, a focus on specific places, but before I feel like it was just sort of like a general a Pan African viewpoint, yeah. you know. <clears throat> and shout out to you know the folks in places like Ghana welcoming in Black Americans because I feel like if it were me, I'd be like, no, y'all stay over there. <laughs> 
<laughs> Y'all, see, don't bring that respectability over here. Don't, <laughs> but, you know, we all we all we all have room to grow. We're here <laughs> in the second <laughs> movement where uh, Delaney and I are going to talk about a piece of music that we have been repeating over and over all week. And why is a piece of music uh, we've been listening to? How about you um, get us started? You mentioned Ghana. The composer, not only the artist, but the composer who you're honoring this week, that moved all the way over there. Tell, t- tell us more about why why you're listening to Stevie Wonder. Uh, well, I mean, if you know me, you know I'm always listening to Stevie Wonder. Um, and since, since childhood, or who who put you on to Stevie? <laughs> yeah, since childhood, the first concert I ever remember going to was Stevie Wonder's House Full of Toys. I actually am trying to go this year. Um, cause we used to, you know, like I said, we used to do our black history month programs. We also did a Christmas program. And one of those, I had a dance routine to one of Stevie Wonder's Christmas songs. I was probably like maybe five. And my mom said, I actually remember going out into the aisle at his concert and doing my Christmas, my dance routine (laughs) (laughs) at his um, house full of toys, which is a benefit concert. He does a toy drive around Christmas time. Um, so yeah, for as long as I can remember, I've been listening to Stevie Wonder, but, um, um, I've been specifically listening to um, his album, uh, uh, Journey Through the Secret Life of Plants, which is actually a soundtrack to a, a mm. documentary about plants, about botany. Um, and this album is kind of controversial because it got terrible reviews when it first came out. Um, part of it is because it came out just after his magnum opus, uh, Songs in the Key of Life, which is a right. wildly popular album. Every like, you know, Legendary. it's considered yeah. one of his yeah, one of his um best uh projects ever. And so for this to come out right afterwards, um it's a very experimental album. Um lots of different things going on, um lots of electronic instruments and and things like that and also it's paired with um, um, with a visual media. So, so, you know, some people might not it, get the whole story by just listening to it on its own. And also mm-hmm. he didn't cause he's blind. So he was writing something for something he couldn't see. And, you know, so that all of this stuff going on with this album and I mean, just terrible reviews and some of the stuff the white folks were saying some, there was one music critic that said the headline was maybe his worst yet. I'm like oh the gosh. audacity. <laughs> I just can't even believe I can, but I can't, you know, um, <laughs> But all that is to say, um, I was reading a little bit about his um, sort of his thought process and going into this because he had said if he ever did a soundtrack, he thought it would be a movie about black people and about, Mm -hmm. you know, black life. And he actually kind of brought that into the conversation around this movie in a really unique way. He decided to um, sort of have have some of the album be about the inter uh, the intersection and also some of the similarities between ecology and plants and mm-hmm. black life and the the piece that I that I chose is called same old story, um, and it's sort of a biographical piece of two um, two men. The first one being um, a, a botanist, a scientist by the name of Jagadish uh, Chandra Bose, who was um, an Indian scientist. Um, who created, um, he, he made all of these revolutionary discoveries about plants and how they can move and feel things and, and all sorts of different, um, he created, invented all these instruments that allowed us to make these discoveries about plants. Didn't get a lot of recognition in his lifetime. 
Um, and then the second half of the um, song is about George Washington Carver, who is often credited with inventing peanut butter, but he also... That's he, all they know. <laughs> <laughs> which it turns out he, he actually didn't, but he invented all these other, you know, um, mm-hmm. amazing things and un- revolutionized the way that we grow crops and all of these things that we understand about plants. Um, and it took him, in the song it says, you know, it took him so much to be able to prove that his method was the best way. Um, and and so there's kind of this duality of like these are these these black and brown men who um, who were brilliant and had to do so much to prove their abilities. Um, and also on the other side, um, talking about the plants and how so many people thought it was crazy to believe that plants were so much like us, that they could mm-hmm. move and feel and do all these things. And that is sort of a parallel to how we see black people in the society. And so the song is about how it's um, the same old story over and over and over again of, you know, us having to prove ourselves um, um, and and people essentially being non-believers. That's sort of what the chorus is, is about. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, yeah. Let's take a listen here. Born to open for mankind nature's door A life known by a few And those who knew that shared Their knowledge few or cared About what they could do For most fair First of all, whoever was playing bass on this recording said, I see that there's some dynamics that Stevie Wonder wrote, but I'm just going to play for it. <laughs> it might have been him because he played a lot oh, of really? <laughs> yeah. instruments on the album. It could have been him. but <laughs> yeah. that, See, that's what's so incredible about Stevie Wonder is that not, you know, if 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 he were only a songwriter, if he had only written the songs that we know, he would be a legend in that regard. But not only is he writing these songs, he's playing the piano, bodied the harmonica. See, I feel like we don't give him his harmonica flowers often enough. Scott one time pulled up a video (laughs) of uh, some concert, I think in Japan, Stevie Wonder playing the drums. So if you got a blind man hitting the (laughs) hi-hat... Yeah. Look, give him his flowers and stop playing. Ooh, well, yeah, th- thank you for bringing that up. I'm going to have to, you know, when I consume um, some plants, I'm going to have <laughs> to think about that relationship between black folks and plants. I'm thinking about, you know, you talked about, uh, we were talking about ISBM and, and ex- ex- exclusively black space. When you're growing something like a tomato plant or something, you have to have that flower bed. And sometimes you have to have that netting or something around the plants because you don't want the rabbits and squirrels coming in and chewing on it and all that stuff. So sometimes plants need that protection in the same way black people need that mm-hmm. protection. And see, now you see, now you're getting me going. Now you're getting me going. <laughs> oh, incredible. And, you know, as everyone does, I'm very familiar with songs in the key of life, but I'm not as familiar with this album. So I look forward to uh, taking taking a, a deeper dive this week. So thank you so much for bringing that in. Shout out to Stevie Wonder all the way over there in Africa where I want to be. Okay. Uh, so uh, for my um, second ending this week, I wanted to bring in music uh, by Margaret Bonds. Now I know that she is a name that more and more people are beginning to know and, and all that sort of thing. But 
at the last uh, Gateways Festival, the virtual festival. Shout out to uh, Tammy Carnodal, um, a black woman uh, musicologist. She put me on to a piece of music by Margaret Bonds called the Montgomery Variations. And um, the recording that she used was one by students at the University of Connecticut. So shout out to them. Not, I mean, let's keep it real. This is called Triloquy, not the best recording because, you know, they're students in X, Y, and Z. This isn't a recording studio and all that, but it was important, an important recording for us to know what this piece of music uh, is. Well, uh, earlier this week, not even a week ago as we're recording this, the Minnesota Orchestra released their recording of it. So really, this is the first, you know, and I don't like the word professional, but the, the, the first mm-hmm. so-called professional recording of this piece of music. So I wanted to um, put this on people's re- radars and share a bit of it. So it starts... Uh, Well, first of all, let me back up. So Margaret Bonds, um, in addition to many other black women composers of the day and black women in general, uh, she was on the ground. She was in the protests, you know, fighting for uh, workers' rights, fighting for voters' rights, and, you know, would go home or go wherever she goes and write music that tells that experience. So in the first movement of this Montgomery Variations, you hear that drum roll that sort of evokes the marching and and the protesting and and that aspect of it. And it's an orchestration of a famous Negro spiritual put on top of that um, called I Want Jesus to Walk With Me, a spiritual that I love. But anyway, really powerful piece of music, very important piece of music uh, for folks to know. So we're going to listen to a little bit of this first movement of uh, the Montgomery Variations by Margaret Bonds. And it just goes on and, and plays on variations of that tune. It almost chokes me up listening to it. I've been listening to it a lot this week because I have a really strong emotional connection to, you know, on the surface level, teaching this piece of music on all the guest lectures and everything that I do to these students who never heard of Margaret Bonds, much less this very important piece of music, you know. But then to see it realized in, in such a beautiful recording, you know, again, I, I don't, we've already covered how I don't love giving these orchestras they flowers uh, but shout out to the minnesota orchestra you know for creating this uh recording that can sort of serve as um a shadow or the spirit of all of what was going into those years in black history we love to take um Samuel Coleridge Taylor or Ignatius Sancho, all these people, and just lift them out of blackness and put them into these orchestral spaces. But I think in doing that, we forget that these composers were real black people fighting for real black things. Those folks that that a defense attorney is afraid to have in the courtroom, all these black folks that these orchestra halls or whoever are afraid to have within those spaces, these are the black people who wrote this music. 
Like you're just picking them up out of that experience and acting like their proximity to whiteness and classical music was more significant to uh, than what they did for black people and other aspects of their life. So in all ways, we celebrate Margaret Bonds. I celebrate Margaret Bonds as a musician activist the same way we celebrate Nina Simone and so many other people. Her artistic voice, her musical voice sounded a little different. It was more on the orchestral side, but that doesn't make it any less black and any um, less impactful to where we are today and where we're still going. So I hope uh, I'll link that in the description. I hope everyone will go check out and give a, um, a closer listen to the Montgomery Variations uh, by Margaret Bonds. Delaney, this might be the longest opus of Triloquy ever. We, we just hear <laughs> chit chat. But anyway, we, uh, we're about to get into uh, the third movement. So the guests um, this week come from the Chicago Jazz Philharmonic. I had to, the great pleasure of sitting down with Rhapsody Snyder and Orbert Davis from uh, the, the Chicago Jazz Philharmonic. I learned about them when I uh, played a gig. Shout out to Adrian Dunn and the Rise Orchestra over in uh, Chicago. So in the after party, uh, they were there. Uh, uh, Rhapsody was there. So she was telling me about her job as uh, executive director of the uh, Chicago Jazz Philharmonic, what it is. So for folks who don't know, it's a, a full-fledged orchestra. It's a Western orchestra. But um, Orbert Davis, the uh, lead trumpeter and conductor and composer, takes blackness and writes music for each of these concerts, for these people to enjoy what uh, they call third stream, sort of this space between classical and jazz that they believe can really transform not only um, the scene in Chicago, but the classical and orchestral scene across the country and around the world if they will embrace um, this idea. So um, to get us into uh, that conversation, I found a, a video, a recording of a performance by the Chicago Jazz Philharmonic that we'll get into. Uh, Orbert gets us started by giving us his definition of third stream and what that means. So um, I hope y'all enjoy. It's a concept that I enjoyed uh, learning about in an ensemble I enjoyed learning about. So here's a quick performance by the Chicago Jazz Philharmonic, and here's my conversation with Rhapsody Snyder and Orbert Davis from CJP. You know, it, it, it historically it, it starts with um, that that place where uh, composer conductor Gunther Schuler was finding that that space, which, which was a very personal space for him. You know, being a, a classical musician, uh, French horn player for the for the New York Met, but then also really appreciating and understanding the music of the the guys he hung out with at night: Duke Ellington, Count Basie. Miles Davis, you know, he played on one of the uh, Birth of the Cool recordings, so he got it and he respected it. So I think that's that's kind of where where you know it is where it started, but it, it's, he defined it as that middle ground, that place where where the two genres meet. Um, and quite honestly, we tried to come up with a different term. We thought that that third stream was very uh, academic. You know, it's like you know, will people really understand? Because when you think when you just say third stream, it doesn't say classical jazz. It's just 
third stream. What what does that mean? It could be a, it could be a sports, you know, fishing, whatever, you know. But but the more we you know in our, in our years just kept kept dealing with it, it, it just started to 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 make sense to us, especially as we as we work in third stream, we found ways to take it beyond what Gunther even thought, and I think it's primarily as third stream applies to the, not just the music but the musicians. No. Oh man. Oh, it, it, you know, it's the musicians, it's the people, it's the audience, it's education, it's leadership and, and everywhere, you know, <laughs> but we'll, yeah. we'll talk about that more. Well, well, well I, I, I hate to oversimplify the concept and the evolving idea of third stream, but uh-huh. I'm thinking about a, a so-called classical audience and community, your so-called jazz audience and community, and what could happen when they come together. Is Third Stream actually doing that? I imagine that maybe the classical folks might stay over here and the jazz audience develops, or what's your perspective on that? It's it's really both. I mean, it's it, and there's there's really no gauge, because I, I, instead of looking at it as, as, as kind of bipolar opposites, I look at mm. the whole Third Stream experience as... as um, a, a billion uh, steps, you know. So th- th- in terms of people, um, we have found a, a, a new audience, if you will. You know, it's not necessarily oh, wow. the classical audience or the jazz audience. But remember, there's also the, just the audience who's who's open for new ideas. And especially all of our performances through the years have never really been about just branding this is jazz or branding classical. We, we, we're very thematic. So... They take for example our um, our uh, project Chicago River. Just by hearing that, we have no idea what it means. But the fact that first we were commissioned by Chicago Symphony Orchestra to uh, to compose the piece and present it at Symphony Center, of course, then that opened up the eyes of some classical people. Um, the fact that by then we already established ourselves, and I'm I you know I've been a jazz artist for as long as I can remember, so people have always known me as the jazz trumpet player. Mm-hmm. But then the fact that this project dealt with the reversal of the Chicago River, you know, in the in the early 1900s, and that affected everybody. Most people didn't know about it. We had a lot of archaeological people and all kind of um, historians who were interested in the fact that, wait, the river was reversed? Yeah, because people were dying because all the pollutants were going into our drinking water. You know, mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it, it just became, and, and with what we do, more of this interest of, what are they tackling now? What, what, what subject are they tackling? And even now, our latest production, Chicago Immigrant Stories. Oh, man, talk about third stream. Yeah, yeah. Rhapsody, I want to turn to you, you know, this idea of uh, third stream. I wonder, from your perspective, does it speak to a need? I know that you're from the uh, East Coast, but have been in Chicago for for a long time. You know, from from your perspective, is there um, a need for inter-community blending or the joining of communities as third stream is out to accomplish? Absolutely. And I think that it's so apt that, you know, the Chicago Jazz Philharmonic, that our organization is based here in Chicago, which is one of the most segregated cities in America. Hmm. Right. And so um, our mission to to bridge these gaps, to bridge these communities, right, and seemingly polarized, seemingly different, uh, you know, not only genres and musical genres, but also cultures and communities and down to neighborhoods even, right? But we're actually 
there, there are through lines, there are threads that connect every single part. And so I think that a lot of what CJP does, which makes it so inspiring and beautiful to me as, as the executive director is educating people to see those threads and to see those through lines. Um, and also just providing opportunities for people to experience them themselves and, and to put those connections together themselves. So we really, I just absolutely love what we do so much. It's, it, it just fills my heart every day um, to see how we use third stream um, and not only just classical and jazz, but also right, especially through the immigrant story series, the music of so many different kinds of cultures as well come together um, and 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 celebrate each individual culture and highlight what they what they do and what they have to bring to the American experience as a whole. Yeah, and you speak to the American experience as a whole. How do you balance community engagement, localness, you know, and everything that CJP does, but also spreading this narrative on a national level? Because, you know, this is something that is very unique. I've never heard of a jazz philharmonic. I've, you know, it, it seems like something that the whole nation could benefit from learning from. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's you know, I think it starts local and then it grows. And, and especially with the Immigrant Stories series, where now we're focusing on, you know, and have been for the past three, four years, focusing on different Chicago neighborhoods and, mm-hmm. and the different cultures, uh, you know, coming together and, and, and highlighting uh, the amazing contributions they brought to American society as a whole. So even though it's, it's locally based here, the story behind it um, and what it can be can easily be applied on a national level. Right. It could just be and or I've heard Orbert say this many times could just be immigrant stories. Yeah. Um, and and although it's Chicago based, it does not it does not have to be. Right. Yeah, yeah sure. Sure. I do want to Orbert. I want to yeah. get into uh, some of Chicago's history. I, I've, I've been to Chicago once. Uh, that's oh. where I met Rhapsody. It was a, an incredible trip. And sure. I learned so much so quickly. You know, I just didn't know that this uh, city was so rich in, in so much history. Yeah. I want, you know, as a, as a native, I wonder uh, what some of the Chicago history that uh, reinforces these contemporary challenges that Rhapsody is speaking to a segregated city, a, a city of, of different se- separation. What's, what's your perspective on the on the place history, uh, you know, mm-hmm. impacts the today when oh, it comes to that conversation. Of course. Well, first of all, geographically, Chicago is a hub. When you think, when you just look at the map, it's like right there. And downtown Chicago, there's a uh, intersection we call the the Circle Exchange. And if you get on that, you can go one direction and you're, you're going north. The other direction, you're going south. Well, you can't go east. Well, you, you go east a little bit lower than, than the, the lake. You, you, it's a straight shot to New York. Take 80 west, it's a straight shot to California. So it really is that central. And when you think historically, particularly, the, the um, it, it was a destination, you know, starting with the um, the World's Fair, even. Mm. You know, and the World's Fair, you could say, was kind of the that, that launching point of the great black migration. You know, so where this all this focus became going to Chicago. Count Basie had that song, I'm going to Chicago, sorry I can't take you. You know, <laughs> and, and I think, you know, it, it's 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 the New Orleans pathway from the Mississippi River, then coming to Chicago. You know, many people were, were of course, my parents even in the in the um, 
fifties in, in search of jobs and the steel industry provided my father that freedom that he didn't have in Louisiana. You know, so as people move, culture moves, you know, influences move, you know, the, the blues, which we, you know, most people think, you know, well, most people think of city blues. That's kind of where the genre lies. Da, 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 it's the blues. But when you, when you look at the history of African-American music from, from the slave songs to the uh, field hollers, to the, um, what we would call what gospel or early spiritual, that was all just black music. It just, it just depended on where it was performed. Then we also had this phenomenon called the, the, the urban blues, you know, a, a, a single male playing with his guitar, not really in time, but he's just, mm-hmm. he's a poet. He's a Giro, Giro, I'm sorry, <laughs> Griot playing, <Right>. playing <laughs> his, his, I'm hungry, playing, you know, You're playing hungry, his guitar. Yeah. And then when that feeling was brought to Chicago, it was the women who took it over and said, no, we're going to, we, mm-hmm. we, they citified it with jazz musicians and, and Louis Armstrong followers. And that became its own genre. And even to the present, Chicago house music, you know, there's so much that that Chicago has kind of been that incubator, that that where it goes, not only to the nation, but to the world. Is that still the perspective on on that style of music? I'm from Memphis, so I very much know yeah. the guy sitting in the bar singing and and playing his guitar. Is is a, a maybe third stream what CJP is doing? You know, within jazz communities, is that seen as the cleaned up city? Oh, y'all are over there, sort of sort of jazz, or 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 has there been some unification there? Yeah, you know, it depends on on who's doing the talking. It's just okay. <laughs> you know, anybody can. Oh man, you know, of course the jazz, the, the jazz purists would say. You know, man, you're messing it up. This is supposed to be free. You know, the classical people are saying, you don't mess with Mozart. Don't do that. You got to do right. this. And, you know, but I, I, even before I was a kind of a jazz musician, I was a studio musician, right? In college. I, mean, I actually paid for college through, by working in the studios. Um, and so any given day, playing in a symphony, or, well, every day I took a piccolo trumpet, my, my B flat, didn't play C too much. Um, my flugelhorn and all my mutes and a given day mm-hmm. sound like miles sound like clifford sound like freddie sound like oh you're, oh you like this story i had a, uh, a session once and uh i was like number nine in this company's list you know they have the trumpet players and mm-hmm. they called me and they said can you get to the studio in half hour i said i'd be there in 15 minutes so they couldn't <laughs> they couldn't get the regular guys it was a last minute thing and i got there and the, the i'm not going to criticize the producer but he was a little bit condescending put it that way and as soon as I sat down, you know, I actually heard him, you know, tell his contractor, why'd you get him? You know, I don't know if he could even play, you know, so, <laughs> you know, so he, I got in, he's like, he said, oh, this is a C part. Would you like me to transpose it for you? I said, no, no, this is fine. <laughs> right before we started recording, you know, it was, it was, I'll never forget. It was Velveeta cheese, Mexican, Mexican okay. cheese. And I asked him, I said, well, do, do you want this more Spanish or do you want it more like Rafael Mendez? He said, I don't know. What do you think? I said, well, you can triple tongue here, do this here. And then I played it. And then he and I actually became good friends, but I went from like uh-huh. number nine on their list to number one, you know, but, <laughs> but I think I say that to say that there's always these preconceptions. Mm-hmm. You know, people think, what am I in for? You know, and the biggest preconception was when I came to the podium at our first concert, people know me as a trumpet player. They're like, oh, this is going to be disastrous. He can't conduct. But <laughs> what they didn't know was I, I spent, 10 years before that being a ghostwriter for jingles and mm. for one company, I was their classical jazz guy. And, you know, being an academic at the same time, it wasn't like 
that wasn't just about the money or the next gig. It was like, what can I learn from this situation? What can I, how can I grow as a composer? How can I bring the artistic qualities of Stravinsky or Tchaikovsky into this particular thing? You know? Yeah. And then finally, yeah. I think the other part of it is the fact that the musicians, um, and we're at a place now where we have to have third stream musicians. And we've given our musicians enough time to become third stream. You know, and it, it's and I'm I'm very tough on that. Like I, I don't I don't say, okay, jazz is you know, an eighth note uh equals a triplet with the first two, you know, mm -hmm. part no 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 no. If you don't know it, you should know it. And shame on you for not realizing this is American music. Jazz is American music. And I, I just had the platform in my honor alma mater in their board meeting. And I blasted him about that, about, you know, we're, you know, the, of course, the subject is about diversity and inclusion. And I was saying, well, pity you on this school and all schools for not teaching American music. I said, because yeah. we're not training our musicians to, to be employable, you know, because if, if we're doing a certain spectrum of jazz and I'd say, well, give me, make it more like New Testament Basie. And I'll say, we who? I said, Count mm. Basie? You don't know? <laughs> How can you not know? Okay. You don't know Duke Ellington? You don't even know who Duke Ellington is? You know, and, and it's a disservice because now they're in a professional situation and they're called on, to, and, and this is like 101. And, and if they can't sure. do it, then there's a gap in the education, you know? And yeah, yeah. if we talk about that, I could give you a whole chapter on that. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're definitely going to circle back around to, you know, education, the role of conservatories, X, oh. Y, and Z. But, but Rhapsody, you know, something that I was thinking about, these preconceived notions, they don't come from nowhere. There are pipelines, um, dare I say, institutions that reinforce these things over the generations. With that in mind, I wonder um, how you weigh CJP's role in a city with a um, Chicago Symphony, a Chicago Philharmonic, a, a Lyric Opera, all, all of these Western classical institutions, you know, does that make uh, the, the role, the work of CJP even more urgent, even more something? Well, what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. Um, not only because there's, there's no one else that sees the industry how we do, Right, it makes it even even more valuable and important, and 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 more crucial that people um, experience what we have to offer and participate mm -hmm. in what we have to offer. Um, you know, if we're if if the industry as a whole, it, you know, touching on what Orbert was just talking about is is going to change. Right, it, it does start with the education piece, the conservatory, and even you know earlier and, and you know before that too. Mm -hmm. um, but I think a lot of where that stuff kind of gets ingrained is in that conservatory setting. And then when they, they graduate and they start gigging and it, they meaning most musicians, right. They, they don't have, um, they don't have the knowledge of, of what it really takes to, to be open and creative and to understand American music and Amer American culture in this way, right. Still chasing that Eurocentric um, mm -hmm. aesthetic and sound um, as though it were better in some way, right? And and why? Mm -hmm. um, doesn't have to be here in America. <laughs> no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So no way. I feel like I digressed a little oh. bit in where I was going with that, but um, oh no, yeah, that that's perfect. Um, okay, so so we're here talking about that. Uh, uh, you know, as you said, chasing that Eurocentric aesthetic, Orbert. Yeah. I'm sure that, 
European, you know, centric uh, approach to music is serving your work in some way. Before we talk about, you know, what they need to, what needs to be thrown out, what needs to be changed, how does the so-called classical training um, of your musicians benefit CJP? Mm. Are, are there specific things that you need um, your musicians to understand and know on the classical side? Most definitely. I mean, well, the first thing is is to realize that the instruments are European-based instruments. You know, they are from that particular time. And the, the thing for me, again, is, is, to, is to simply take off all labels. And, um, you know, I, I'm almost avoiding trying to say that everybody should, should get the classical training first. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't want to pin it all on classical because even some of the ways that we teach in our education program, you know, if a student can improvise on three notes, let them improvise. Start them, yeah. impro- start them with the process of ownership of their music. But, you know, and, you know, when, when we look at the technique of, of monster jazz musicians who really didn't study classical, we, 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 they learned their instrument. They learned their craft. They learned the mm-hmm. technique and the mechanics of the instrument. So I don't want to say that that's because of classical training. For me, it is. Because from, you know, my first serious lesson in freshman year of high school, through high school, through college, before I even really focus on jazz i was playing classical music it was all about the mm-hmm. sound the, the the tradition you know so when 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 i was introduced to jazz it wasn't again like all of a sudden putting on a different face it was simply like 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 a language you know i'm having sure. the hardest time learning spanish but i'm getting there you know i i, I can i can i can do the vowel and consonant sounds because i'm practicing and reading it but it's still my voice Mm-hmm. You know, so as I move into jazz, as I moved into jazz, it, it was still my voice. But at the same time, when I practice, I, I, I practice on within this the entire spectrum. That will I ever be sit in a, in a seat in an orchestra? No, I never wanted to. Mm-hmm. But w- <laughs> when it came time for employment, because there there were so many times when, especially um, you know, playing the pop music or playing jazz, they. You would never see a classical player hired for those, but you would always see the jazz players hired for the hired for the orchestra, hmm. because we can adapt. That's very interesting. We can we can we can we can we can, we can match the sound. We know exactly what it is. We do it now. Not to say that that's a hierarchy, because there were. You know, some, I get to a session and, and like the first trumpet from Chicago Symphony Orchestra be there. And I'm just like, oh, man, you know, wow, <laughs> let me learn, you know, just superb. And um, I actually for, oh, my goodness, 14 years, I played in the orchestra at the Airy Crown Theater for, for the Christmas Nutcracker. 28 shows a, a season. And, you know, that music is so a part of my brain and my my blood that the the, yeah. co- the concert master one day asked they were, they were panicking, Barbara, Barbara, we need to find a jazz trumpet player now. Do you know anybody? <laughs> <laughs> and by then I said, well, actually, my only classical job is the Nutcracker, and I, that was such a compliment to, for her to think that I was a classical trumpet player. Totally, you know. But um, I kind of want I kind of want to dig into that yeah. though. Is, is is there some embedded something in our continued reverence of? classical even within those spaces i mean as a as a bassoonist if i could do all the stuff that these other jazz people can do that i feel like would be my selling point and not the fact that i can play mozart beautifully yes yes and i think that's the thing we have to get to i i as an analogy i always say that you know music is like chicken 
you know, we, we, we don't just, no one I know eat it one way every mm-hmm. time. <laughs> sure. You know, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, I got this huge grill in my, you know, a made to order brick grill in my backyard. Oh, can't wait till summer. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, 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 every time I grill, no matter what I cook, it's always different. I don't have, I, I have specialties, but I always make it different. I always d- try a different technique, but at this core, it's the same. The meat's the same. And I, I think that if we thought that way musically, then we won't be so put off by by things being even a, a, a little bit different or vastly different. Mm. You know, so therefore, when it comes to as, as artistic director and composer, I never think in terms of genre. I, I think in terms of spectrum. So every, like, well, I'll say like Chicago River, I mentioned that. The first movement, one would think that it's, it's a classical work all the way into 25% in, and it just gradually shifts a little bit. Why? Because we get we get a little bit of a groove happening, and it's not a groove in terms of let's dance. It's just simply this mm-hmm. this rhythmic pulse that grows and grows. And that was intentional because the whole idea of a river is that the river's identity is based on its location, not necessarily its content. No one thinks about the content of the water. The water is coming from all these different places, but we don't we don't we don't analyze it and say that's fifty percent from this river, and that's mm-hmm. 40% from that mountain. It's, it's, it is what it is. But as it flows, it picks up with whatever's in the way, and that becomes part of the river, and it takes it. So that concept of of, of that, it, that concept is kind of the way with music. You know, in our last concert, um, we featured Japanese-American music, you know, third stream. You know, I could have gone into that situation and said, here's what I want you guys to play. No, the 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 lead artist has spent a lot of time. He, he plays traditional uh, Ginsu Japanese music, but he also worked within the AACM um, free jazz mm-hmm. world. Yep. And and we started there, and we had these chapters where where they could play. He and his daughter, his daughters were playing taiko drums. I said, "You guys play," and I made sure every time we took it, we we stopped. I would say, "What do you think?" I don't want. I don't want to. Leave, I don't want to. I, I want you to guide us. And wow, it 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 really came together so much so that later, when we 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 also featured these amazing three Brazilian Chicagoans. Oh my goodness! And so we did this this Brazilian kind of samba, and the the Japanese uh, drummers just jumped in. They had to jump in. Oh wow! But I I could not write that down. I couldn't say I want you to play. They would say, Oh no, no, we can't do it. They had to discover for themselves where they fit. And I think wow. that that's kind of like this this whole magical process that happens in Third Stream. Now, I must tell you, I had no idea that it would happen that way. It's just it, well, it, that's that's the magic of live performance, right? Exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Rhapsody is as as we're thinking about the many different ways to proverbially cook this chicken, right? I, <laughs> I wonder, um, you know, how do how do you uh, engage the conversation of audience development, not specifically community engagement, but, you know, who who is the audience who can, you know, take in all of these different sounds, who can understand the the concept of uh, of leaving labels behind and and just taking what happens? Yeah, I think I think that Chicago Jazz Philharmonic does such an incredible job of reaching a huge, very, very wide population. Um, especially because of so many of these very open and, and, and 
kind of freeing types of collaborations that we do. It invites so many different kinds of people into the space. And from my perspective, um, in a very inclusive and accessible way, mm-hmm. right? Because it's not um, a tokenizing, oh, a person of color up up on stage playing their traditional music. That's not what's happening. In, in February. <laughs> exactly. It, absolutely. Yes. Yes. And it's it's one, you know, piece and they, they do a little solo and then we move on back to our, you know, our regular programming. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that is not happening. And I think that it, it's, it's a very different experience for an audience member to actually see this, this integration, how it's woven into all aspects of the performance and the concert and how, um, how the art form is, is truly being recognized and appreciated for what it is and not being put on display. Absolutely. Right. It's very, very different, yeah. different concept. Um, so, so in that regard, I think because CJB has worked with so many different kinds of communities and different kinds of people, that the audience base is is very vast. Um, I think a, a, a strong core of our audience base are are jazz enthusiasts, right? Okay. Um, and I would really love to learn more how to how to bridge that gap into the classical realm because as a classical person myself, and both my parents are classical musicians, um, we, we had a very strong appreciation for jazz in our household mm-hmm. and listened and grew up listening to jazz. It was always on. And I think that the the overlap is there between classical and jazz people. I think if you love music and you have studied music in some capacity, you understand um, and can appreciate one or the other. Um, I, I don't think they're so separated as people think that they might be. Exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. Especially so. when I think about, especially when I think about just general culture, we we like to, you know, sometimes just sort of ingest or or to be academic, say jazz is American classical. But again, where I grew up, it was kind of treated like that. I grew up in a very hip hop household, but on our way to church, it was jazz because you know you're not uh, listening to all that stuff on you know on your way to the church house. So yeah, I, I think that's vital. Um, Rhapsody, one thing I wanted to ask you about though. Um, I wonder what the conversation of accessibility looks like outside of its artistic parameters. How do you approach things like uh, ticket cost, um, maybe where uh, uh, where the performance hall is, transportation? What, what, what are all of those conversations look like? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, the pandemic has really shifted the way that the organization um, views these things. Right. And and it's always been a, a priority. It's always been a value. Um, and CJP has often done free concerts hmm. um, in, in, in an, a way to make this music and the experiences accessible to everyone. Um, so we're exploring some avenues now, if I can let the cat out of the bag over it, to, oh, yeah. <laughs> to formally, as a part of you know, the mission of CJP, be able to offer free concerts. All of our programming to be free and accessible to everyone. Um, so we're, you know, putting together the steps necessary to make that happen. Um, instead of just having a few free performances a year and then other things be ticketed at the the normal, you know, big houses here in Chicago, mm-hmm. um, so that you know, absolutely everything we do is something that everybody can participate in. 
little bit of a tune there called Diaspora, as performed by the Chicago Jazz Philharmonic. We talked for so long that I decided to split the interview into two. So just to make sure that this Opus Atriloquy ain't four hours long, uh, I split that uh, conversation in half. So be sure to come back next week for part two of my conversation with Rhapsody Snyder and Orbert Davis of the Chicago Jazz Philharmonic. Before we uh, get into the fourth movement, Delaney, I know your opinion, well, I won't say opinions, but I understand your experience being a bassist and people coming to you like, oh, so you play jazz or you, you know, and, and you're, you were very much trained on the, on the classical side of things. Mm -hmm. Okay. So fast forward to today is playing in a jazz philharmonic, a full orchestra where, you know, you need your training, reading music, you know, a bow technique, whatever y'all be talking about in the in the bass world, where all of that applies, but you have the opportunity to not only uh, play and platform black music, but uh, music written by the black man on the podium. Is that something that you would consider? Um... I mean, well, black music in general, sh sure. And I think um, anything um, that falls into that category, I would certainly support in any way that I, I can, even if that is not, you know, on stage, because, you know. <laughs> um, I, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, but I have I have a huge, I mean, I just don't have that jazz bone in my body. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I admire jazz bass players so much because I do not know how they do it. I look at that <laughs> and I'm like, I do, like the technique is crazy to me. Like, <laughs> it's absolutely crazy to me. So, um, but I mean, even, even when I'm at now um in any sort of workshop if you playing black music I would definitely show show my support because I went through and the whole Seattle Symphony season and checked off all the concerts Whoop. I'm going to um Whoop. I'm only going and the, to and the ones you aren't <laughs> exactly <laughs> um and you know there's one coming up in a couple of weeks I wrote program notes for it it's a piece by Joel Thompson a piece by Florence Price so I will be there but that that's the first one I'm going to this season. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, shout out to all the ensembles shaking it up and, and changing things out here. Again, part two of our conversation next week. All right, well, Delaney, um, as you know, we like to trill our way into the final movement of this podcast. So I looked far and wide through the bass repertoire and found y'all trilling. Y'all don't trill a lot, or maybe I just wasn't looking at the right thing, but <laughs> I, I, uh, I found uh, the end of uh, the bass concerto by uh, Botticini. Is that just one of the ones y'all know? Have you played the Botticini? I have not, but it is a standard concerto, one of the most popular ones. <laughs> okay, well, yeah. well we're, we're going to listen to a little of the uh, end of this. As brought to us today, I, I had to make sure I found a black bassist as well. The bassist performing here is named Kibra Seyun Charles, a bit of the fi uh, the last moments, the last uh, few bars of the Botticini bass concerto to get us into the fourth movement. Piano is loud in this recording, but he, he, there were some there were some nice trills under mm -hmm. there. So shout out to uh, uh, to uh, uh, Keeper Seyun Charles for that really phenomenal performance. I'll put the link to that uh, in the description. All right, well we're here in the fourth movement, the Triloquy movement. This is the thing, Delaney. This is the thing. 
This podcast is called Triloquy. We're misbehaved over here, but you gave <laughs> but you gave me permission permission to mm-hmm. uh, to dive into this footage, and that's what we're gonna do. So first and foremost. <laughs> What what the footage we're about to listen to, what event is is this coming from? What were you and Katie uh, doing? We were doing a live show at the Yola National Symposium in Los Angeles, which is um, an event put on by the Los Angeles Philharmonic um, for mm-hmm. music educators and um, administrators. First of, first of all, before we get into it, I want to shout y'all out for um, the sound quality of the, well, first, is, is this available somewhere for people to look at or download or, or is this an exclusive? Oh, <laughs> uh, no, we, um, it, you can listen to it um, on anywhere you get classically black. We released a recording of it. Oh, oh it, it was, it released on your feed. Okay. So yeah, mm-hmm. I need to catch up. Well, yeah, the, the sound quality is good. You know, the, the live uh, shows that we have done one, one of them, uh, you know, it was it was fine, but it's hard to get that podcast quality, you know, from a crowd. But I think y'all traversed that really excellently. So, for, so first of all, uh, congratulations to that. But we're we're gonna listen to. Uh, so I guess this was the question and answer portion, or the yep, the very first question we got. <laughs> the first one. Oh my gosh! Yeah. All right, here As we go. A black musician, and I've performed um, quite many places. I'm hoping that as this change starts occurring, that um, black people can be a little more lenient. Um, I'm referring to um, the Oberlin Conservatory where they did a Black History Month concert. And the, I think it was this past February, if I'm not mistaken. And they got a lot of backlash, the faculty that did that because the poster um, wasn't very, I guess, flattering in terms of what it was when they put black artistry and I believe they left off the they put pictures of the performers versus the the composers and you know I think efforts like that don't necessarily need to be chastised the way it did I think it's a big setback when there are performers that want to take this on themselves to do something recognize these composers and you know sort of treat it like a normal performance. All right. So All right. Th- this this is the thing. And to protect the guilty, because, you know, I'm rooting for everybody black. I'm not going to say this man's name, but this is someone who is black, but very, I would say very famous in, in, in classical circles. I've performed, um, the, the last time I performed with this musician, we were playing Soldier's Tale with the, uh, the Gateways uh, Symphony. You know, and for folks don't, that don't know Stravinsky's Soldier's Tale, you know, that, that takes some counting, that takes some, uh, some concentration. And as famous, so the, the first bit of shade I'm going to throw, as famous as this musician is and the, the places he has climbed in the, or in the ensembles he's played with, he was having problems too, okay? And I don't have the job that he got. I don't have the salary that he got. So the first thing I wanna say, and I'm bringing that up because not only did he say, you know, as a black musician, he goes on to talk about, you know, I've, I've, I've played in many places as if 
that is supposed to justify or give him some some range as to what he's saying uh, that somebody in school, a student or somebody else mm -hmm. might not have. I just want to point out that bit of respectability before we really get into this. The idea that you're only allowed to have a certain opinion or a certain critique if you play with this orchestra or if you teach at this school or if you have done this with your profession as a musician. That's the first thing that I wanted to uh, point out. But as far as giving predominantly white institutions leniency, he was not even willing to say the word white. And, you know, as, as you listen back to that, and, and I'm, I didn't notice it the first time I listened th uh, through, but that, that really blares out to me uh, very loudly, uh, an unwillingness to even say the word white, um, an unwillingness to name of the issue or why even to consider why people had an issue with what Oberlin did. And we talked about this on Triloquy. I know y'all talked about it on Classic <laughs> Black because I remember that week. Um, and, you know, through all of this, what I roll back to is even for black people, maybe even especially for black people, once you reach a certain level in your field, especially in classical music, it doesn't become about shaking up the space, diversifying, decolonizing, uh, busting down the space. It turns into, let me say, just enough to maintain my position in that space. And I think as uh, we continue to see diversity in um, orchestras of all types and all sizes within the institutions, the danger that we're approaching is that people think that that is the work, that being in that space is the work. But that's not the work. The work is pushing forward. And if your work is only to maintain your position within these institutions, you aren't actually doing the work. I got into a big argument. I, I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago. I got into a, a little bit of a scuffle uh, with another very famous black musician when I was talking about, well, I don't know if I believe in fixing from the inside based on X, Y, and Z. For me, this is another exhibit, exhibit W, you know, to <laughs> exhibit W to put on the list of reasons why so many folks from the outside, so many folks in activist spaces, even in classical music, don't trust the notion of change from the inside when we hear this type of rhetoric coming from a musician who plays in orchestras that are so-called top level what was y'all's um reaction to i, I know what y'all said but you know now that you've let it marinate and you're listening back what do you think about that idea now listening to a black musician with a lot of influence over other black musicians saying you know let's take it easy on the whites they didn't mean it i mean i mean what you were saying about the respectability of it all I, earlier on when we were speaking freely before the, the q a um i remember hesitating a little bit because i was about to say the year that i graduated either college or high school and i mm -hmm. remember thinking like is that going to you know do something to my credibility but i had already started saying it and also right. i know who i am and whatever you know so i said it anyway and i do think that that went in into the um the w what made him feel so comfortable making that exchange and saying oh you know i've been around for a long time well i'm here now so mm -hmm. <laughs> right right now yeah. exactly <laughs> so um you know i think that that was definitely a part of it and it was actually it was just very sad that we went through we, this was the only um only session that was um exclusively about well hold on that actually that that same person did a session that was about black people 
about black people but i don't I think to hear it i think it was about you know i think it, a lot of the terminology was poc this and mm-hmm. and it wasn't really as direct as we all know katie and i are mm-hmm. so i and i wasn't there but i heard about it so i will still maintain we were the only session that was very directly about black, black yeah. people um and also hosted by two black women the only um session that had you know a, a full um that was was curated and presented by an all black uh, team um and to have the very first question be another black person you know sort of being like hey y'all are doing too much take it easy x y and z was just like it was kind of sad and it was kind of embarrassing um to sort of have that happen especially because um later on in the in the question it also he also threw something in there about how as black people we need to be just as good and better and i'm like what does that even mean like right. you know it, it was all of this all of this stuff that was actually it was just very kind of it was sad to first of all see somebody frankly embarrass themselves that way because uh, you know shout out to amari amari ford who was also there and who kind of stepped up and responded to that question you can hear that on episode 154 classical black you can hear the whole thing shout shout out to amari (laughs) yeah and it was like we um we don't stand up for black women enough and so i felt like i needed to step in that's what he told us um um and yeah i feel like our response was kind of trying to explain what was wrong with that particular oberlin situation um and also the fact that that example didn't even really make much sense because i agree that yeah people should play black composers in all types of concerts and um but he said treat it as a regular quote-unquote regular performance and it's like this the name of the concert was celebrating black artistry Mm -hmm. it was literally it was a specialized concert and y'all chose to put a group of white people on on the flyer and any black person well maybe not any but most black people who looked at that could immediately tell you the problem with it and that just goes to show that y'all y'all don't have the diversity um across the board that you need because you obviously don't have it on your marketing team you you were you're reminding me and i think it's you know you i know you mentioned langston hughes earlier in conjunction with the isbm uh conference coming up I think it's Langston Hughes. If it's not, it'll be right in the description. But there's this essay uh, by a famous black writer responding to a student of his who is saying, well, I don't want to be known as a great black author. I just want to be known as a great author. And what Langston Hughes gets into is that that statement is a desire toward whiteness, a desire to fit into that. Because when people, when most people think of a famous author, you know, they're thinking, uh, maybe I shouldn't say most people because I don't think of, you know, a white person right off the bat, but let's say just run-of-the-mill folks, they are likely thinking of just a white person when they think of a the concept of a famous black author in the same way that most people think of a white person when they hear the word composer, you know. So anyway, Langston uh, gets into why that's problematic and why being known as the black something is what we should aspire to. And I'm thinking about that in his statement when he's talking about it should just be a normal thing, a normal part of it. Well, these aren't normal circumstances. This isn't a normal time in history. What they've been doing 
you know, for over a hundred years is everything but normal. And what other musical space do we center music by dead folks of over a hundred years ago? That That is not normal, but we have normalized it. So mm -hmm. in that statement, what I heard was a sort of attempt to, to put whiteness around the black orchestral music that we're platforming and that we're programming. Uh, the other thing that I was thinking about, you know, earlier we were talking about the need for exclusively black spaces. I will admit, I will say that if that event took place predominantly, you know, uh, in a space that is all black, wasn't recorded, black folks can just have the conversation and, and bust it down. I think that's a useful conversation and I think there's room there. But to have that sort of conversation, to have that question in front of people that are not black is what's really problematic to me. And I don't really have the vocabulary, maybe even the intelligence right now in this moment to explain why that's problematic. But what do you what do you think about that piece of it? Saying things like that in front of white folks who might need to be swayed, you know, toward toward programming black stuff. I think um I mean, two things is one of them is that um, sort of describing what we're doing is a very backwards way of thinking, in my opinion, of describing what we're doing as the setback, because that's literally what he right. said was it's a setback if if we react to what they did poorly rather than it's a setback for them to do it poorly in the first place. That's something um, definitely an ideal, an ideology that I've encountered from an older generation of black people um who they they're very much of this is how it is so this mm -hmm. is how you gotta be rather than this is how it is but let's change that they're all about the how you react to what white people are doing rather than trying to change how that is um but what i think specifically about having that conversation to mixed company is the same reason why um i never um qualify stuff by saying well not all white people because mm -hmm. once you have that conversation and then you throw in the well not all then the white people that are in the room that is immediately what their brain goes to and says oh okay well oh, it's not, not all. yeah exactly she's not talking about me exactly right. you right. don't even put it in there because it's like a rat with cheese they're gonna latch onto that and, <laughs> and be like oh yeah yeah that's true for some people but they must not be talking about me sometimes we talking about you yeah. So I feel yeah. like that's why you got to be real careful about how you say stuff, because even if you don't see it happening, it's happening that that connect, it's connecting in people's brains that they don't have to pay as much attention to it because they think that that's sort of their way out of the accountability. So to say to put it on us is like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They taking it too far. I See, I thought they I thought them ninjas was doing too much. Exactly. You know? <laughs> Exactly. See, and that's the thing. I, I, I aspire to a musical um, and larger narrative ecosystem where men like myself, where white people, whoever, who you know, what whatever um, identity has been guilty of, of marginalizing folks of other identities, we have to get to the place where we are okay just hearing other thoughts and other ideas and other communities speak to people of those identities. You people, y'all know, people know that we don't hate all white people. That's just, that's just not true. Why is that something that you need affirmed yeah. in the way that we approach these conversations? There's a lack of maturity there. Yeah. It's so, it's, it, it's, it's, it's so tiring. Me. You're right. Yeah. It's, it's self, it's self-centered. And I think it it's a problem. You personally. 
a, a primary tool of white supremacy, you know, gaslighting and trying to flip the script on people fighting for equity by saying, oh, well, they're the racists. They're the ones who X, Y, you know, and, and blah, blah, blah. I guess, um, you know, backing up from uh, this specifically, when we talk about dismantling uh, the respectability and specifically holding ourselves accountable, black people holding ourselves accountable. I wonder what are some of the things that uh, you think we can do to make sure we aren't, you know, being a part of the community that this um, low brass player, that's all I'll say, this low... <laughs> <laughs> that this low brass player is putting out there. I hold myself accountable all the time. Am I being pro-black in everything I'm doing? Or is my decision to say this or program this or go here or do that? Is is that a, a manifestation of my own colonization or, or white supremacy at play? Just holding myself accountable. So, you know, all of all of that to ask, I wonder what your thoughts are on black people specifically holding ourselves accountable in classical spaces when it comes to equity. Yeah, I think that some people, I think like you kind of mentioned earlier, some people think just like show, like being there is doing the work. And I think that some people think just because they are black, it's just like, yeah, it's in me. And it's like, mm -hmm. you know, there are certain things that are lived experience when you're black, but also like you have to realize you are only human and you are have been in this space for a long time. It would be foolish to believe that none of this, none of these ideas have gotten through to you, Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I've I've learned that through classically black like we always joke oh my god if you if you heard what we was picking for piece of the week in episodes one through 50 versus like now it right. Mozart this and Beethoven that and like because that's what I was playing that's what I was listening to and mm -hmm. I had to sort of um evolve um in that by questioning okay well how was my education how has that kind of been worked into the way I think about classical music there has been a lot of um unlearning on um in, in public throughout and you will see it through the evolution of the show um so i think that a lot of people have have to sort of look at kind of where they came from and just and i i think it, it's about taking yourself out of this um sort of out of the narrative in terms of like not taking offense when you see that you have not um necessarily been practicing what you preach right um because it's not unique to you it's like you are human you have been in a place that has had the the mission of of sort of infusing these ideas into everyone that comes through it and you are one of the people that went through it and it happened to you and you have to take the responsibility to really look at the the choices that you're making and and the things that you're bringing into into conversations with other black people um and also listening to people when they pull you aside and be like that's not cool and considering what they say, despite the fact that they may not have played in this orchestra that you've played in or have this professional title or are still in school or whatever, that does not make those perspectives and those uh, and those comments invalid. If anything, yeah. it probably makes I it was, more valid. I was just about to say it might do the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> like, I play with this orchestra that hasn't played a black composer in its entire history for all of this. Time. Like, yeah. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Well, in anyway, I'm 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 gonna pray for our brother. I am I'm going to uh, in the way that we have all evolved in some. I mean, certainly me for sure. I mean, you talked about the early episodes of classically black, even beyond uh, uh, triloquy. The way when I was first getting into media and radio, the way that I programmed was always. You know, it, it was it was never centered on Beethoven, Mozart, and them. But you know, I started 
really focusing in on the new music and then you know learning so many no so much new music forced me to learn so many new composers and so many of them were women and black folks so you know from there I was like well wait a minute let me dive more into the blacks see what see what they do and, and that's sort of my mo now and what I've dedicated my life to so you know I, I I just told that quick story as a means of saying it's not like we're just writing off black people who, who operate this way or ask those questions, uh, uh, participate in those very respectable institutions, perpetuate the respectability that's oppressing all of us. We're not throwing y'all away. We're just saying that you need to evolve. And I hope that he evolves. I hope all of our black musicians evolve so that one day, we can just bust all this shit up. As, as he says, we, you know, it will become a normal thing. We don't have to talk about it. It just is what it is. But there's just cultural unlearning. There's institutional and systemic undoing that we have to do to get us there. And that sort of rhetoric does not get us there. If anything, that presses us back because the white folks in positions of power who have made those mistakes will run off and say, oh, well, such and such from such and such orchestra said that the black folks are doing too much. So I I'm going to go with him. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm going to agree with that. So um, anyway, uh, we, we, we all need to do better. We all have room to grow. Like I said, shout out to our brother. We're going to pray for him. So uh, I think that'll do it uh, for this week. Delaney, thank you once again for being this week's guest co-host. I mean, your body, you came prepared. Thank you very much. How can, uh, how can folks, for anyone who for some reason does not know, how can they check out Classically Black? Um, we have a website, classicallyblackpodcast.com. You can also follow us across all social media platforms at Classically Black Podcast. Yeah, excellent. Well, um, once again, a shout out and thank you to Molly McCann and everyone over at Hensel Pushers. Be sure to visit henselpushers.org to pre-order your Fanny Mendelssohn Hensel music. Very important uh, work going on there. Uh, thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. And uh, to all my niggas, I'll see y'all on Saturday. Yeah.